And welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And this is a return to something we have not done in a long time. The legendary, amazing, grand all pick. We've all picked it. We've all picked it. So At the behest of Matt, who really did the work, who really picked I, it I really for did. us to no. pick it in turn. No, 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 no. We've said multiple times that a band like this was going to be an all pick. That Just because true. of how much we talk about them. Although I will say, like, Steve did push Chili Peppers, I believe, which was our last all pick. Like, it was your idea to do it, and then we were like, oh, but that it should be an all pack. my idea to do it as the first of the season. Yeah. It was 2-0-1, because yeah. it would be a nice place. Yeah. This, I don't know. It's just here because it's here. So this is, of course, if you've listened to us at all during our Pantheon, uh, this is the band The Gorillas. And we'll go into more about the album and everything and why I picked it, besides the obvious, in a few. But I want to tell a little anecdote about how I became familiar with the Gorillas. This was in an age where MTV still played music videos. Shocking, I know. And I was up late at my girlfriend at the time's house. Um, we were watching her little sister, and her little sister was having an issue. And so she went upstairs, and so I was just browsing TV. And I come across MTV, and I see animated apes dancing on screen. And I'm like... Uh, uh, what? And so I start listening, and I groove out to the song. This, of course, was the music video for Clint Eastwood by the Gorillas. And I was like, an animated band? What the hell is this? Is this just a weird music video for? And, I, and of course, also the voice I had recognized. A virtual band, I must A virtual band. Um, but also the voice I had recognized. What really hooked me is I was like, that sounds like Damon Alburn of Blur, who I was a big fan of at the time, and, I'm, and still am. And I was like, but it can't be him. Why would he be in another band? Blur still exists. And, of course, I did research on the early internets, and uh, it was his band, and I... Then went out of my way to consume their self-titled and devour everything they had done at that point. Um, and it was fascinating to me, this idea of a virtual band. But my, my introduction to them was, of course, their music video, which, of course, their videos are what they're famous for as well because of the animation by um, Jamie Hewlett. I was in almost the exact same situation with a couple of flips. Uh, one, I did not make the link to Blur for, like, years. Not going to lie, years. I did not link the two voices together. Two, it wasn't Clint Eastwood, I don't think. I think it was 19-2000, which um, was just a, a trippy, awesome Hot Wheels video. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you, I immediately fell in love with them. In fact, first time I listened to Clint Eastwood, uh, within the week I could do the entire rap. And I can still actually do the entire rap without having to listen to it, with the exception of you know a little bit of like a fluff up right before we did this album in like four years, five years. I don't know. When's the last time we went karaoke? Because I, I always know. do that song. Me and John famously do a duet. He does the rap. I do the TD, 2D stuff. And yeah, because I can't do the rap. I've I tried. Yeah, I could do it offhand, off the cuff. And I'm not going to do it on the show because that we'd have to cut it because it's just so bad. But uh, it was one of those bands that I instantly fell in love with. And also one of those bands I never fell out of love of the first album. And that became like my yardstick. Mm -hmm. The self-title is still the one that I kind of hold in the highest of regards, though Demon Days is still like neck and neck, just almost, almost, but not quite at that same level. Um, but unlike you, I kind of fell out of love with them by the time Plastic Beach rolled around. Yeah, there was I just some sort of change in Plastic Beach that greeted me kind of the wrong way. I'm not saying it's a bad album by any stretch. It just wasn't one of those ones I loved. Yeah, for me, I really still loved Plastic Beach. I learned to love it. It definitely took more embracing because I had to get used to this change. I will admit that The Fall, which was an album released within the same year that um, Damon bragged that he created solely on his iPad, was 
very artistically good. Like it was an artsy album. It wasn't as much enjoyable as the previous records. But um, but yeah, I've never fallen out of love with them, and I've been looking forward to this new album with bated breath and high anticipation. Guess what? I'm a mainstream newcomer to, well, not newcomer, but the mainstream album of theirs was Demon Days. Right. That's exactly when I got into them. Yeah. And so then I was given uh, Gorillaz at the same exact time, and I was like, all right, great, perfect. I have both of these at my disposal. I can just kind of scrounge between these two albums, and I kind of, I, I feel like I almost randomized between the two, believe mm-hmm. it or not, and I just loved them to the same extent, but Demon Days took the cake, because Demon Days was just a tight product, and I felt almost like it was was a debut because I like for me of course right actually for me that's that's going to be a phrase that's going to be batted around a lot today you yeah. already have a couple times yeah, yeah, yeah. for me for me it's kind of the question because well, this is a band that's probably one of the more personal bands for all of us collectively well that's why I always feel a little weird when we do albums like this by well-known established and greatly anticipated artists on our part because one I never know whether it's spiel writing time or not on one hand you'd think albums like this demand the lord of all spiels we love them we all have fond memories, so we want to go into the, the, the depths. Who are they? Where did they begin? But then on the other hand, everybody knows that. <laughs> and yeah. we know them, you know them, we just said all this stuff. It's so. kind of like you giving a spiel on Beyonce. Exa- yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's just get right to it. And you'll be happy. No, yes, I settled on the second option. But I did want to quickly mention that other reason why I feel a little bit weird when we do albums like this, and that's number two. Our age-old question of to what standard do we hold them? Yeah. And the answer you'd you think would either be our own in conjunction with its own, such as the intent it puts across, right. but stemming from what? Like what we love out of music or what we love out of the band or what we really, really needed at that moment in time. So it's just some questions that I'm throwing out here. Here, take some questions. <laughs> Have some. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. I mean, I, we all openly admit that, you know, like the last album we did like this, which I mentioned was Red Hot Chili Peppers, there was this leaning to be... I don't know if it's more lenient, but we definitely had stars in our eyes because we all love that band. Mm-hmm. And so, Gorillaz, we're going to probably encounter some similar things, at least moment to moment. Maybe not for the album as a whole. Thankfully, there are less albums uh, in the Gorillaz discography than Red right, Chili Peppers. for sure. Um, but, uh, so, of course, if you haven't guessed by now, the album is Humans by the Gorillaz. Um, of course, a play on their name, the yeah. Gorillaz with a Z, Humans with a Z. I was making a Zorro hand motion. Yeah. <laughs> because why not? Which works when he does it, but then <laughs> right, you can't yeah, see it, so yeah, it doesn't no, matter. No, sure, sure. But uh, just to include the people who have been living under a rock, then we should probably <laughs> just get the Cliff Notes version of Gorillaz out there. And of course, it is predominantly Damon Auburn uh, at the head of it all. He writes most of this stuff, but with a lot of help. For instance, the only other member who's kind of listed right alongside with him is the animator, and that's Jamie Hewlett, because that's he's been associated as the virtual, creating the virtual portion of this band, which yeah. is kind of what they're seen as, and that is 2D, Murdoch, Russell, and Noodle. Yeah. And, you know, so Damon Alburn, since he does a lot of the singing, he is also the voice of 2D. Um, Murdoch Nichols is often um, featured doing a lot of the talking in the animated clips that they've put out because he's kind of the leader, even though he's not. Technically, the front man is 2D, but, but Murdoch tends to take charge. Russell, of course, when he does speak, or sings, rather, on most of the albums he's represented by De La Soul or other rappers. You know, his internal spirits are mm. all rap rappers or rap stars. And also to your previous point, apparently in the lore, there is a power struggle between uh, 2D and Murdoch. Murdoch. Yeah. Or Essentially, at least Murdoch has, he really wants to be the leader. He wants the to be the guy. Yeah. The guy. Um, 
So yeah, I think that's an interesting dynamic and what's always got me interested in the band is the fact that there are these characters who are technically the band members and that Damon Albarn doesn't really exist in their world. Yeah, essentially. Even, even though you hear him clear as day. <laughs> right, constantly. Uh, one of the funniest things about seeing them live in concert um, when they play at Madison Square Garden is the show opens with a clip of them in the, getting locked in their dressing room and then Murdoch starts to lose his shit because someone's singing their music because Damon starts to sing on stage and he's, he just freaks out like who 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 the hell's singing our music and then they cut away to the band on stage and that's the gag is that this band is just playing the gorillas music but they're not the gorillas the gorillas are locked in their dressing room right and but wow i think we kind of just did the cliff notes version of the spiel and also the album cover at the same time because of course the album cover literally just is those four members. Sure. Well, it's the second time they've done an album cover like that. Demon Days also had the four of them um, profile, whereas in this album cover, it's the four of them, but CG animated, yeah. which was a cool way to see the mm -hmm. band members. So you see them occupying their corner of the square in different colors. They're all color-coded. What it does, though, is actually shows you... You can see it most in Noodle, but you see a maturity level increase... For yeah. these characters, because one of the things is they age, or yeah. they are forcefully aged by their animator, yeah. um, to become more mature, to actually keep up with the music themselves, as well as the actual gaps between albums and things like that, or them participating in music. So, while I don't think the album art really speaks to me, other than being a presentation of, hey, look, it's the gorillas, um, from the point of view of a fan, it actually says a lot to really show the maturity change in the characters, or rather, not necessarily maturity. They're, they're getting older. There's going to be a yeah. little bit of a difference between previous works and humans. That's the key thing I see here, is they, they all have a little bit more weathered faces. Yeah. That's the most obvious thing. And I've always found it fascinating with Noodle the most, because she's the youngest band member. Like, she's pretty much a little kid on the first album, that you see the most change in her and through her, because she's changed. Like on the first album, she sings her very 19, 2000, she's her vocals are very kiddish. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dare, it's very, you know, it's more mature. And so hearing that growth in the character through the way the narrative is delivered by these different singers that they bring in and the way they're differently animated, I think is really great. I mean, we watched before we started recording the music video for Saturn's Bars. And we even get more insight to their uh, animated growth because you can really see see how they've changed in that animation. Yeah, it, it's a, almost a shame there. <laughs> I am always a little hesitant with this, but like you almost kind of want there to be like a gorillas TV show a little bit. Uh, yeah, a little I know bit. it would be like uh, a far flung, you know, extremely merchandised thing, but still, it would be nice. I'm interested in the characters and the snippets we get in the music videos, like even the style of music video, how they drag race against Bruce Willis. Yeah. Like, it's a really cool and interesting dynamic all the characters have and all the videos have. So yeah, it, it, it would be interesting to have more narrative, but it also might be too much to have it more It might narrative. be too much. You get the shorts, uh, which usually play right before the music video itself, and then there you are. That's maybe enough. Yeah, for sure. I think it's unanimous that we have a fondness for this band, and that we will have a lot to say about the album. Um, I also want to um, posit a theory up front as we start to talk about the record, is that I believe uh, Ben Mendelsohn, best known as the Big Bad from Rogue One, um, he's an accomplished actor, but that's the most recent thing I've mm -hmm. seen him in, yep. um, has these intros and interludes where it's mostly dialogue with a little bit of instrumentation. I'm positing that he is the vocalized persona of Murdoch on this record. Gotcha. I, I haven't found... 
uh, anything speaking to that specifically, but that's my headcanon, at least, if nothing else. I'll believe you, Matt. I'll Thanks. believe you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Steve. So unless we have any more um, shtick to share, we can uh, take on this record. Yep. No more shtick. All right. Track one. Intro. I switched my robot off. So as I said before, Ben Mendelsohn does the vocals or dialogue here, and uh, it's very straightforward. I switched my robot off. I know more, but retain less. Retain less. Um, you know, it adds, uh, it, it's a good starting point for the record, but I think essentially it just serves as an introduction to the next track, uh, Ascension. I don't think it really has any greater narrative. It just it says does it very softly and more yeah. of a kind of an echoey haze with what sounds like a TV on in the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he himself is, it's not singing, it's just no, uttering. No, it's just spoken. Yeah, it's, spoken. It's a preamble for track two, Ascension. I can't see it as anything but that. It, it doesn't even quite feel like an uh, introduction to the album so much as really setting us up for Ascension because of the way everything bleeds through. All the interludes that are used on this album really do feel like they're just a flow point piece to get to the next track. Well, but they I, really do a lot to set it up. I will say that it is a particularly uh, introspective start considering his tone of voice compared to the, the, the track that we're coming to, track Ascension, I mean, there's kind of an upbeat nature to some of these early tracks, and yet track one kind of led me to believe just at first glance that this was going to be a darker album. Yeah, and um, there's a fan theory that this is actually an homage to Damon's solo record that he had done, which we, we tackled on the podcast, Everyday, Everyday Robots. Robots. Episode 109. And, you know, I mean... There's a lot of Damon's other work in Gorillaz, obviously, and vice versa. Um, we said at many points that there, the new Blur record did seem to have some Gorilla-ish influence. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, but there's nothing here. St- I mean, it's literally two lines of dialogue, even so there's no you, real way. Even if you didn't want to like look at his work and yeah. his motive or the motive and the message behind this album, if you just take that message, I really like how that just connects with the concept of aging. Yeah. That's pretty much everybody's experience is we all know more, but then we retain less as we get a little bit older. Yeah. And it's just like it doesn't really stick with you. Some of it you don't, you don't want in there to take out other stuff. It's, uh, I don't know, kind of sad. It was a sad yes. few seconds because yeah. that's literally all we get. <laughs> Track the, two, we get a little more. So we go into Ascension, which is featuring Vince Staple, one of many featured guests on this record. And um, we get more or less vocals from the start, a little bit of synth hum, but then we get his hip-hop vocals. It's the rap that starts, yeah, immediately over this rising siren. And then the siren, of course, you know, descends and it kind of lingers there for a very, Mm -hmm. very long time. There's some bated breath right before, well, I I guess I might as well read the, uh, You are now tuned into the tomb of Jehovah. Play my tunes loud enough to shake the room. What's the holdup? Heard the world is ending soon. I assume that they told you they're trying to dinosaur us. So now it's time to go up. And, well, I guess that's it right there. Time to go up. Go up. Leave, you know? Yeah. And so that's why we get that siren. I don't know. It just sounds like everything's kind of taken off a little bit. And then all of a sudden, on that bated breath, we head straight into the chorus. And this is, interestingly, not much of a discernible difference in style from the beginning in terms of the way he's singing. Yeah. Except that just the beats are a little bit more vibrant at this point. It's a little bit more, it's a little bit busier. So on one hand, you got like the this 16th note drum machine snare throughout all this. The sky's falling, baby, drop that ass for it, crash higher, right? But then at the same time, you also have little like bass gulps next to that. This interesting like whoop whoop. And it's kind of a weird contrast, which I like. 
it adds a nice little distorted effect, especially when I look at it as building off of not just the siren, but those really mild synth notes that were in the introduction, that were in the very beginning of this track, that were almost un un unheard as you're going through that introduction mm. and throughout the verses themselves. It plays on the juxtaposition between the high register and the low register, which allows one to distort the other because they're allowed to interrupt each other. And this playful back and forth between the two then extends to the real verse work that's going on. Not just staple stuff, but also when 2D steps in later on, they get really weird. And that, to me, is the big draw on this because every time they get weird or a little hiccupy, the music plays along with it, allowing that earlier playfulness to really show up in how things are being presented to us. Well, just on one one small aspect of what you just said, that would be the 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 high pitches and the low pitches. For I think that's actually something he likes to pull from the exaggerated versions of that, like in most of his work mm -hmm. and most of the gorillas. You have those big, you know bass drop tracks that yeah. just kind of like capture every audience imaginable and at the same time he also likes these little delicate ethereal things at the top and it seems like there's not a lot of wasted space in terms of that not a lot of just like cool middle ground he likes to shock you with both sides of the spectrum in this case both sides of the spectrum are just like that bass gulp and of course the little uh hi-hat drum machine or drum machine snare thing really anyway there's a, another aspect about this rhythmically that I really, really liked, and that was the development, because, of course, you just went from this, you know, uh, 16th note chorus, where everything was a little bit more faster paced, and then all of a sudden, after, uh, by the next verse, you sort of shift more to just quarter notes. This would be where the roof is on fire, she wet like Barbara Streisand, police everywhere, right? It's just this sort of, you know, singular uh, quarter note snap that's just a little bit, a little bit shorter, a little bit slower, a little more easier to manage. But then at the same time, as it gets a little bit further into that same verse uh, by the time you get to on that 911 shit. Here we start like just doubling it up a little bit. Now it's eighth notes all of a sudden. And by this point it, it feels like it's building up to something again. Mm -hmm. So I just like, you know, it's just a simple double have, double have. Yeah. It's But at the same time, that keeps things a little more interesting because a lot of dance tracks and this is, I would say, mostly a dance track, don't really ever shake that up. It's just the same beat all the time. Yeah, and it, it's, I think that mirror to each other the fact that they pair together so well is what kind of drew me in because it added um i don't know this kind of immersion to the track that just kind of just pulled me in wanted me to dance wanted me to groove along to it and i think that the track does go through an evolution because even later in the track the the samples and the synth sounds that we're getting evolve a bit um i did admittedly on first few listens focus quite a bit on the vocals here because also it, it very much from a perception i suppose is very much a the world's gonna end so let's get laid kind of a track like that's yeah, li literally just sounds like what it is there is some social politics uh, social and politics in there of course in what he's singing about and kind of his perspective there were some yeah i it's kind of some notes of drunk actually that came back to me drunk by thundercat in yeah. just his sort of way of avoiding the problem by kind of saying let's just let's just Let's worry about other things. Or yeah. Let's not worry about ourselves. Like here are these problems. Let's, let's be really inward. Yeah, let's yeah. be really hedonistic. Whatever you got to do to get through it. But there is sort of a representation of importance as they, as the verses evolve, and the verses do evolve slightly. Almost, I want to say, with sound bit usage as opposed to expansion of melodies or anything like that. But when there's some a major shift. 
Like in verse 2, when 2D comes in with the line, then I get advantage because the feeling's so raw, a lot of the higher register drops out, and we just get a real big, bassy wump noise yeah. step in. And it feels like now he's saying something that is, that is actually dramatic and important. The same happens in the third verse when we get a... 8-bit MIDI yeah. interspersion. It feels like almost like sampling of old-school NES action. Yeah. Just showing up every once in a while with, like, rumbling explosions and things like that. But it's background enough. It, it just so happens to accent syllables that pop yeah. out a little bit more, even though inflection isn't really changing. And this sort it, of texture control is something I love. It definitely gives punch to the vocals that without it wouldn't really be there, even though they are well mixed and kind of just in the background. I would even take it back just a little bit earlier because I think the transitions overall on this track are really, really good. You know, when you go in from the second chorus into that second verse, the first time uh, 2D sings, that attack on Iraq, it's on a line, right? This is interesting because that release, as soon as the chorus ended, it, it it's just that higher, which is the last little little parenthetical at the end that is sort of the chorus answering uh, Vince Staples' line, drop that ass for a crash, higher, and they hold that. And that bleeds seamlessly into this sort of synth chorusing. And that takes this chorus a little bit further and pushes it through the motions in, into this, like, ethereal haze because... When 2D starts singing, overall, it sounds very nonchalant. And he always kind of sounded pretty nonchalant, even back in every other uh, Gorillaz album that I can think of. But that ethereal haze in which he sings, that I like that transition, because I couldn't think of many, uh, many honest-to-God transitions that were possible from Vince Staples' singing style. And so somehow that just works. He always anchors it back to himself. Well, right. And it also helps that he has he's being backed up by the human's chorus. Yeah, uh, just called the humans. Um, and what's really interesting about that that you bring up is, I want to talk a little bit about the instrumentation and how, as a whole, this song doesn't really have the staples that are considered Gorilla's instrumentation as far as drums, bass, guitar. But it has staples, been staples. <sighs> um, but but Same, yeah. but seriously, there's no <laughs> there's no instruments here. Like it's a lot of electronic stuff, and we don't really hear any bass or guitar or drums until the next track and it's only bass but it's electronic bass and so i'm a little bit i'm i'm cautiously optimistic at this point on the album when i first heard it because i liked this track i got into it i grooved along to it but i did recognize that it felt different but the, well, see, I don't think it's that different. Not as of this track. And also, when you're talking about the bass, I don't need to say I don't need anything traditional when you're talking about the gorillas. And I think these are the kind of the discussions that well, we're probably going to end up having because, of course, we do have that familiarity. And I think in such the way that every Gorillaz album always felt like sort of an eclectic variety of different styles. And to some extent, that's all of Damon Auburn's stick. He, he kind of is implacable in many ways. You could just kind of group it under alt, but he has huge influence from hip-hop, and he brings it in. And it's, of course, how he chooses, if he indeed is choosing, or if this is, I don't know, how the, the setup process is, is created where he obtains these uh, featured artists. But I do know that when the the big bass part did drop in this track that uh, that John brought up halfway through that second verse. I didn't expect it, but I thought at the time how incredibly gorillas that was. Yes, how when, and that's where I'm definitely I'm, yeah I'm definitely on the line of the 2D section specifically grounded me with the familiarity of gorillas. I was enjoying this because of a lot of the juxtaposition that was being put into it, which also still felt yeah. like gorillas kind of to the T. 
but it's not my, even just juxtaposition. It's opposite. It's just straight up opposition. Yeah, like okay, yeah, straight of, up opposition. It, it's just like but, a deep oscillation, like a big industrial fan in a large wind tunnel. That's how I felt it. But, and here's the big but with this first track. It felt like bits of music. It felt like it was sound bites being used in some cases, especially in that last verse, that third verse. It did not feel as experimental on the melody scale as it did on the texture scale. And that's something I was kind of expecting. And it was a bit of a disappointment because texture-wise, it was all over the place. A lot of integration seemed to be lacking because I could definitively say when one thing steps out, another thing is going to go in. Yeah, but I would I would argue that the integration is just fine. I thought it was a pretty clean and produced uh, mashup of everything. I don't. No, 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 no. no, Let me finish my thought. But you're taking what I just said the wrong way. I'm not saying the things didn't flow together. I'm saying the pieces are distinct and they're fulfilling the same roles as they're replacing one another. When you are introducing something like that deep bass. I feel like overall there really was no change to anything besides just the texture of the song. And because the texture is changing, just really the caliber of music that we're listening to, the melody's not changing, the rhythm's not changing, nothing else. When you're really like pushing the boundaries of going from high-pitched siren down to such a deep bass tone over the course of a minute and a half or less, I would expect more evolution on on the other musical fronts. Right, you would have expected that that would take the song overall somewhere as opposed to kind of just like snapping back right on cue as yes. it did. Okay. Which, and that's my big I'm, disappointment. Yeah, but I, I do have to admit, I thought that was kind of a nice little snap in return. Yeah, like, as, I enjoyed as that as it was. And believe me, I, I'm usually on your side of the, of, of the whatever. So you know <laughs> where I'm coming coin, from. Coin, you know where I'm coming from. Right, yeah. because, you know, when you do get a sound like that, you, do, you would like it to develop things. But in this case, I kind of like that when the first time you hear it, it just shatters that ethereal haze from earlier on, but yet the synth is still there, and it still lingers, stacking notes, getting denser, which just allows for this sudden burst back to the chorus to sound perfectly natural. As a first, again, as a, for all intents and purposes, first track, as we're, you know, we only have that little intro, I I think it worked. I I think this is as good of an intro as I could have wanted. And to go back to something that you brought up earlier about the cried out higher that gets elongated, what I like about the final version is that it gets held out in elongated uh, more than the previous iterations. To end the song, probably. And blend seamlessly into the next track, which is Strobe Light, which features Pevin Everett. And that's where we get this electric bass I was alluding to, where it's it's really thumping bass line that's really kind of in your face. It's pervasive. It's it's a straight-up club track in yeah, this yeah. case. Uh, beat is, yeah, as simple as they come. Kick, clap, kick, clap. But you do got a hooky bass line and when you get that that kind of grounds you a little bit and then it's just step by step introduce something new around 18 seconds in the actual hook which is like a synth melody that i really really dug something a little Mm -hmm. bit more r&b soul inspired also pretty simple but i just enjoyed how playful it was these little pauses before the response to well the call and response that do 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 i think i'm doing an offbeat thing here but then that pause do 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 yeah. And it, it's just, it, you have it, to... It punctuates. It, it's it's likable. It's just a little yeah. bit too likable to, you know, hate on that beat in retrospect. But then, around 35 seconds, of course, then you get our featured artist, Pevin Everett. And at first, 
his voice, like, it, it just on, the first time I heard it, it was not anything particularly standout-ish to me based on the genre, right? But then I started really liking how his voice was pairing up with the type of melody here that was written. Momentary pain can be pleasure lane, will a second change, magic lantern strange. And each and every time here, you'll notice that that last word, that for the most part rhyme, they end in the same exact pitch, yeah. right? And so there's a little bit of a familiarity with like other parts of soul here that I'm like, all right, maybe this is not going to be, yeah, maybe this track is going to be a little bit boring. But then that next line, are we just too far to be as one again? This is where the rhythm here just switched me on for this format because there's an offbeat nature to his singing style here that made it feel really independent of the beat and it sold me on his vocals completely. Actually, the the real part that shined for me was uh, when the hook really shows up and the synth thoroughly just supports his vocals as he's mm -hmm. rising and falling on it. He's that now, was really amazing. Yeah, he's now singing the exact hook that we got earlier on. So now he's doing the thing, you don't need the synth. But and it's, it's a great well. compliment the first, like, three times. Yeah. Except, and this is, I have a huge issue with this track in particular because of how pervasive the kick beat is and how many hooks we get. I understand that this still is really on the dancier side of, of, uh, hip-hop but you don't have to do like four renditions five renditions of the hook at the end and that would really yeah, get on my nerve no 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 it's add more content if you're going to elongate but, the song but you're jumping past to the end of the track and not even discussing the content because uh, i wasn't super into the lyrical content but i'm not even I wasn't talking particularly about lyrics invested into it. i'm talking about instrumentation there is a solo section and there's more to it than just that solo section. We have a light piano compliment that shows up and does a lot to once again support the vocals. We get background synth strings showing up and doing a, a lot to elevate the mood towards the end of the hooks. But yeah, that solo section really is the crux of the piece, musically for me at least. And it's piano, synth piano, really just like... Not going at it, not really going like balls to the wall or anything like that, but very tastefully kind of restating the melody. And that's actually where the kick drops out about halfway through this piece, which is about a minute long. It kind of stands up on its own and gives us a nice moment. Yeah, but, right. But my big issue is that immediately hook. And things like this really bother me. And as great as that core minute was musically, it kind of gets dampened by everything else around it that was bothersome at the end of the day for me. I, I couldn't disagree more with so many of the things you've said, but let's start with the the hook and the, the solo. Well, first of all, the solo comes in around two minutes and 20 seconds, and it's not even piano. It's just synth hi uh, uh, highlights. Synth but, emulating piano. But but what's, what's great about it is that it's kind of speckled. It's not showy-offy. It's just this light moment for you to kind of get enraptured in in the middle of the song. It starts off first a little bit more brassy than string-oriented. Um, right. And actually... Kind of brings I, out. Yeah, it's, it's, it was an extremely electronic part for this. It was the dreamy part, and I'm actually kind of glad that the... the that form of keyboard, that particular keyboard sound has finally brought me over to it. Because I always <laughs> used to think it was kind of campy, but then you set it to a really, really interesting uh, hook slash solo, or a solo that developed out of that hook, and I was I was sold. 
Um, it's just going back to the your point, John, uh, because I need to find some common ground here while at the same time really defending how much like Pevin Everett makes me forget a lot of that crap. Yeah. And that is the fact that I always feel like I'm creating some kind of separate category for heavy club tracks. But it's just that I look for different things within them. I, I firmly believe that club tracks should be as interesting on headphones as on the dance floor. And the parts that are here that are good are really, really good. Namely, Pevin Everett's voice and the melodies that are set to them. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I really, really dig his constant improvisation in the later choruses. Mm -hmm. And you usually hear it in like key moments, like the one I brought up in Are We Just Too Far To Be As One Again, right? And you get it again with this and your heart engages in heartless throws. And then at the end there, that word throws, he has just these little lingering vibratos, these throws, right? These little, I don't even know if you can call it vibratos at that point. They're yeah. just really like quivers. But it's it's just that kind of stuff that keeps me interested. And then, of course, the more elaborate soloing that he does even over his own stuff later on, that keeps me interested in this track. But I'm not going to dis completely, you know, disagree with at the fact that, you know, listening to this under some conditions, it can kind of gloss right over you. I do think it's interesting on headphones. I do think it's interesting on the dance floor. It actually did fail me a little bit on the final group listen that we had right before we started, um, where I agreed with you 100% that it was kind of dragging. So see, you got to mention all that crap. And I will definitely agree with you. And I know uh, Matt wants to make the same point about the vocals. Yeah, he was on point vocally. And the, his freeform nature did a lot to break up the beat that got on my nerves by the end of it because of how freeform, like you said, how, how non adherent he was to the beat itself as he was singing. That did a lot to keep me interested. But I, as much as like the higher register synth was supporting him, I felt like a there wasn't a whole lot other in the music that was supporting him, and it felt like it was doing him his voice a little bit of a disservice. See, I would agree that I feel like the music was on its own could be a bit of a letdown. I will not agree that it was doing a disservice to his vocals. I think his vocals shine, period. I think there are no caveats, no changes, no addendums, for me, anyway. His vocals shine. But, and and also, you know, I can't agree with the fact that it wears on, uh, like... It can wear on you. I can't tell you what it does do, does or doesn't do to you, but I don't agree. It didn't wear on me at all. I, I like this song from start to finish, and I was enraptured in what was here. Um, yes, if his vocals weren't there and the melody wasn't as strong and the hook wasn't as strong, it would probably be a boring track, but it has all those things, so right. it's not boring or lets me down. I should also add that I said that it works on headphones and it works on the dance floor. I did not actually take this track on the dance floor. No, I that's true. If only we had that opportunity to go to the club every week and try out these things there. To I get mean, all bases covered. I unfortunately don't DJ frequently enough to uh, uh, offer that option, but next time I make a dance playlist, I'll add this to Crossover. it. Crossover. <laughs> and uh, like you said, his vocals are are just stellar maybe i'm at the point where i think his vocals might be better than the music supporting it like hands down could have been done to better beat work or more supportive beat work i love his vocals don't get me wrong i'm not going to complain about those he was stellar in doing that content wise take it or leave it i yeah, can just go I along mean, with it i don't really care at that point it just listening to him was yeah, great right i mean i will admit with the gorillas often content is less important than performance mm. in the past but that said i think we're ready to move on to track four saturn's bars which is featuring pop can pop can and uh this is the second single of the album um it has a 
phenomenal music video that I highly recommend because you get a good sense of the gorillas as characters um, from that music video. And um, and from Popcorns because he's been transformed into a gnarly space beast. Several gnarly space beasts. Yes. <laughs> Multiple. And Almost. a slice of pizza. And it's actually something also that's interesting to me. So 2D does a lot of the singing with Popcorns on this track. But in the music video, they're all singing by the end. And it's, I, think, I think Pop Can is supposed to represent the inner demons personified by these monsters and slices of pizza. So which is why they're all singing together towards the end. Well, let's get to the crux of this because um, for any uh, American and British audiences alike, Popcon is a Jamaican DJ and some of this stuff I don't think you're going to get from just the listen itself. No. Um, Though he does I will speak admit- clearly. That I... By the second oh, yeah. one, I understood him. But like, you, well, you have you, to be following you, along, kind of. And even when you do follow along, of course, any lyrics that we can obtain are actually written in the Jamaican phonetic pronunciation. Well, right. So I can understand what he's saying. I don't know what he's saying means, but I can understand yeah. what he's saying. But um, so the song starts, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, with this kind of buzzing, digitized sound that... And then we get the very early vocalizations of pop cans just kind of making noises and grunts and I laughing. I actually remember uh, thinking to myself, even before I had seen that music video, that, that this track was obviously a little bit darker and yeah. that the synth had begun as if it was like the soundtrack to some kind of dystopian anime. Mm-hmm. And not that I would describe Jamie Hewlett's animation style as anime outright, I feel like it has just a couple little hints of it. Well, yeah, there's definitely Japanese influences in animation, and I think yeah. he would admit that. I mean, that's why he did Monkey, The Monkey Goes West, I believe was the name of it, which was a short film that mm. went out a while ago. And so like, I, there's definitely... Uh, influences in his animation. Yeah. And but, it's just funny because I, I interpreted that. I mean, maybe I was already thinking Gorillaz, so I was kind of already thinking the animation right. without even knowing that this was the single and that there was a music video for it. Nevertheless, it, it, it I thought of that atmosphere. I don't know if I thought of Space Beasts and all of the above, but mm. but I got something significantly darker. I had a yeah. story There was going a haunting on. feel before I even watched the music yeah. video, and so it does make sense. But I would I would argue that a lot of the texture that's being used, the the pulses, the whines, the beeps mm-hmm. that are showing up are like I can't get the get away from everything from modern day all the way back to Flash Gordon era of space noises. Um, I do want to say though that and this is the last time I'll bring up the music video and we'll start talking about the actual song is one thing about the beat work that's really cool is one of the t- three demon forms that Popcans takes, which is this like circular worm-like thing. Whenever the beat would flash, he blinks from dark blue to white mm. on the beat, which was a really cool animated effect. Also, keep in mind. The animation for the band is typically 2D, whereas the house and the space creatures are all 3D animation. So it was just a really cool aesthetic. But now back to the song. What's really cool about the very start of this song is that you get a sense of the character of Pop Cans and how he's singing very early on. There's a theatricality to the delivery. It's very energetic. There's a lot in his vocalization that I really like. The signature line that he repeats after that opening verse... All my life, the way he delivers that, I every time it hits, I just am in love with it. Especially because immediately 2D follows it up as, yeah. as we go into the second verse, third verse, and the chorus work. 
every time he hits that line, 2D following it up, the back and forth is just, it's just great stellar for me. Yeah. Just stellar for I me. I really love the duet work in this track. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the fact that that's all sung. I mean, I, I particularly liked this this uh, chorus all my life. It's I like the way the auto-tune kind of colors it. Well, because like, it makes him just sound like he's trapped in the machine almost. Yeah. Like, it sounds very electronic. Yeah, and also the way it deteriorates yeah. at the tail end. All my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually... I'm, I'm admitting it. I have found a, a tasteful use of auto-tune here. And then by the time we enter the rap, well, it's, I, I am not even going to attempt to read these lyrics. Obviously, it's not sung like the beginning. It's rap. Um, and, yeah, to be clear, I think we have to set aside the understanding through music criteria here. Yeah. Because since we we have a bit of a dialectical barrier, then it's not really, like, a relevant aspect. You can't really bring in that, like, oh, I didn't understand what he said, therefore, well, you, right. can't, you can't say that but there, he's but, got an accent. But I was able to pick out certain words, like, there's a final line in the first verse where he talks about this want for houses and cars and boats. I think it's boats. But, like, this, it, there's a, yeah. a want in this... All my life, uh, my dream... My own house for my house, uh, a land, cars, and bikes. Yeah, yeah. You this get that, idea of that... wanting stuff and this, you know, it's it's speaking to the 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 human dream and what you want in life, what you want to get out of life, and there's a sense of that throughout the song, even if you don't grasp all of the lyrics. And also th- via the music, the yeah. fact that it seems always out of his reach a little. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And which I think is also reflected in the gorillas in the music video. They show up to this house and just make it their own, and then it turns out it's haunted. And so it's this this taking what you want kind of a thing, too. Now, the chorus here features 2D over this all-my-life part. It's right? just such a great duet pairing that I think is really interesting. Well, because the music already makes... Uh, popcorn, popcorn <laughs> sounds so detached. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it kind of works. The fact that 2D usually sings pretty detached. I yeah. was actually gonna bring that up in track one. Well, I I did bring up in track one that that 2D usually sings that way, but he seems even just slightly more exaggerated yeah. in this particular album. Well, there's it's seems because to be like a filter over him almost. It's not well, even you get that. that even in the previous albums. <laughs> it's almost like he's going further deadpan than normal mm, yeah. because Popcan's just he's energy. He's not high energy. He's not running around in circles or anything like that. But he's got investment in what he's saying. And 2D just, he's just, he's completely checked out. Click. He's off. Even though he's still speaking. The back and forth between the two. I mean, it's always great when you have someone opposing 2D's Uh kind of nonchalance. Yeah. But this is a little bit of an extreme that I'm not quite really used to. And it's working great. Well, let me read these lyrics here, just in the chorus, to show how detached, I mean, he sounds even just from content. I'm in the Staken bar. Uh, I got debts and I'm a debaser. Saturn's about to make love and I'm just a heartbreaker. And I won't get a take-in because I'm out when I'm staken and the rings I am breaking are making you a personal debt. Yeah. I love that. He feels particularly gutted at this point. And also, like, gutted and haunting. And what's funny is that this is one of those cases where the whole track feels haunting from the delivery of both vocalists to the instrumentation, but it's not scary haunting. It's this almost possession or fogginess, like being in a haunted place but not being afraid, just being intrigued and curious. Well, even look at this. I mean, I don't know if you can consider this the uh, bridge or not. With the holograms beside me, I'll dance alone tonight in a mirrored world. Are you beside me? Yeah. (laughs) You know, for an album that is a little bit cagey, it, it, it does 
it it's, has a strange way of making you feel as if it's being on the nose. Yeah. It's interesting. And then, of course, there's the last thing we should really mention about this track, because it's a huge musical component, and that is the operatic chorus. Yeah. That was something that I did not expect so soon in this album. It felt like almost an end-of-album kind of... Touch. There, was a, there was grandness to yeah. it, yeah. And and it is it, when I say operatic, I do mean operatic. It feels like he actually filled an auditorium full of people, full of like you know London Philharmonic esque <laughs> people, and they all just were given some sheet music to just go. Oh, yeah. And but it, I think it adds to the haunting quality. Yeah, I think it, you know often in in cheesy haunted movies, ghosts do have that kind of operatic sound that they make, that howling almost, which is what this represents. But that. That nonchalance is something that I'm used to. That haunting nature in 2D's vocals is something I'm used to, and something that drew me to his vocals to begin with. Sure, but I'd say the music here is just as equally haunting, and the other vocalists as well, which is a nice touch. The thing it does remind me most of would be probably the, not the rap section, but the chorus work from Clint Eastwood. Sure. Just because of how laid back it, it does seem to feel. It It's reminding me. It's just... I don't know. There's something else going on here that might be elevating it a little bit higher. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just pop can or if it's just the kind of, I guess, Star Trekky noises that are going on that are kind of flushing out the the extra little effort. But there's something better going on here. Well, yeah. Well, also, remember, Clint Eastwood, they're essentially raising apes from the dead. Like, it takes place in a graveyard. There's a thunderstorm. The monkeys rise from graves. So it, that song also had a haunting kind of ambiance. Um, I will say, though, the, the album takes a really strange shift from here to the next track, which... Mind you, is my favorite track, but it does kind of wrap itself up here. You know, this song gets operatic and then ends, and then the next track, track five, Moments, with a Z, featuring De La Soul, a very familiar group to the gorilla's lore, um, it starts with a very basic Casio intro, like a very, you know, you're sitting at a tiny keyboard. Clavichord setting or something, clavichord-esque, and it is pretty wonky. It's almost like they took a simple tune, like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Not obviously that particular tune, but but something something, something like it. I can't pinpoint it, but then they added another beat, almost like they made it into a 5-4 thing, which really distorts it, and then there's that delay and grace note in the second measure that really, really throws me off. It's hard to say, really, really hard to say, but since it results in a complete deterioration by the end of that segment, it, it's likely that he just untethered himself to any click here. Yeah. And then we have De La Soul suddenly for an intro, uh, well, a second intro, because that was the intro, this is another intro, intro part two, acapella yeah. and, and solo to start, just one of them, uh, because it is group, so this is just one of those guys saying... Clocks on the wall, talk to watches on the wrist, it's the moments we relive, it's the moments like this. When it's time to get ill, we be so ahead of time, it's the moments we achieve, best believe it's the moments. And of course, I'm leaving out the fact that those moments bring in the group. Three of them. Three of them. Three of the four times moments mentioned, the first two and the last one, they come in all together go, moments! It's just this fearless male (sighs) entourage. It's amazing. And then that final line, best believe, it's the moments, you hear this buzzing, like someone, like, like, the work buzzer or something like you're you're out on the on the on the docks or, and that's just called you in it's the end of lunch and you're brought in but that brings forward that beat to <laughs> the heavy heavy percussion of boom and it's I wonder how that's gonna sound on headphones <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's absolutely 
uh, enrapturing because it just gets the energy of the track going. And then 2D comes in um, to sing this post-chorus moment, red or black, yellow, red, black, white, dirty. Moments. moments comes in again red or black yellow red black white dirty moments, moments. again and then this high pitched sh- <laughs> but the way he does it it almost sounds like he just goes yeah it's like it's that little escape tone feature when you go read the lyrics i've been listening to this album for more than a month at this point but i never knew what he was saying there i just accepted his vocal play until we we looked at the lyrics today and i saw he's actually saying something which is pretty cool because i didn't even care it was just that fun little high pitched moment moment oh, ah, moments um, that really enraptured me and knowing what he's saying makes it even better and then oh. of course we get into the first var- verse which is of course uh, de la soul uh, playing between each other, singing or rapping, rather, as it were. Well, I also thought it was just a vocalization originally. I just thought it was, yeah, the, I don't know, just like a jazz, you know, scat-ish thing. Mm-hmm. But I was very surprised to see that it actually says "shivers down my backbone" because each and every time that I experienced it, that was exactly what I was experiencing. Yeah. It was a hell of a moment, but then, honestly, the verse is full of them. Yeah. The vocal control that's going on right here and the music playing off of those changes in the vocal control and the actual inflection and the usage and the starting and stopping and everything, it's, it's, it's just magic. It's just awesome the way this track gets screwed up continuously, yet never really loses its cohesion. Yeah, and yeah. this also this whole thing is a real like gorillas track in a way, but it's also yeah. like gorillas, you know, on some kind of uh, steroid because it. I mean, gorillas, like I said in the beginning, they always like to go for the extremes, extremes in in terms of pitch, extremes in terms of in terms of beat, beat drops. But in this case, it was. I guess it was really all the above. He still had the same juxtaposition. It's it's uh, that shivers down my backbone. You don't expect that right next to this, you know. It's it felt like the moment that the gorillas truly came out on this album. And it's not that we've been unkind to anything previously, really. I guess maybe John has been the harsher one so far. But I I will admit that this is kind of the moment where my eyes kind of opened to this album a bit. Um, and now then, of course, the content returns to uh, De La Soul's rap. Uh, Dela is also back again with the crew that's bound to pack them in. Got a girl who's up for the mating. I sense the need in her grandma. Her nose has never been skating. But she's sipping Star Constellation. The real squirt game was so like Tupac at the court run towards camera. Her response to that was just check please. Fuck that my man. You gotta let these moments pass you by like tick. Talk. I'm smacking the bottom like flip-flops made her alarm ring. She screamed, and now we done. We passed the test, and now lay down to rest and wait for the morning hangover that comes. That's a story. Yeah. Packed in a very short amount of time, by the way, because this is a fast, fast rap. And it impressed me. A lot more, let's say, than like the, the first track did. You know, this is the best rap so far on the album. Yeah, for sure. I mean, De La Soul has always brought that to the Gorillas. I mean, they're a staple yeah. of the Gorillas albums. They've had, f- a, they've had a track on every album, I'm pretty sure. Well, it's my yeah. favorite track to sing along to on yeah. every album. This track is not, I mean, excuse me, this album is not just them. Yeah. It's a series of featured artists that bring their own particular little flavor. And I do kind of, I wanted a little more of the high energy that you get here. 
Yeah, I mean, this for sure feels like a party song. It gets the end, the, the the blood flowing. It's high energy. It's impossible to not sing along to that hook, especially the moments like I just like every time that rings out, I just want to shout it along. And then of course there's that plastic on the ceiling, the bridge oh, with dear. the high pitched vocals, which we assume is Noodle, or at least well, it is Noodle. It the is representation noodle. of Noodle. It's it's it's. Credited as Noodle, so whoever the, the vocalist is credited on the album, but it's meant to be yeah. Noodle, yes. Just plastic on the ceiling, and it's, yeah, I don't know what that means, I really don't, but it, it works, everything works musically, and for once I really don't care about and the content. And then De La Soul comes in at the end of pl- those repeated plastics on the ceiling to repeat the line. So uh, now lay down to rest and wait for the morning hangover that comes, it's just yeah. a reprise of the previous. And then goes into the chorus again. Actually, the second chorus is, was really the crux for me. Yeah. Because that's when that carousel shows up. Mm-hmm. And the carouseling effect shows up pretty heavily. And that, for me, was when I felt like I was a little bit validated on some of my earlier critiques. Because they did keep the core of the chorus the same. But uh, on the other hand, it felt a little bit more... Like they actually reimagined it, that it was a redux kind of an idea, mm-hmm. that something that would have been on a remix had the courses been the same throughout this piece, hmm. which made me, in retrospect, very antagonistic against the previous tracks where I was pointing out these problems, where I felt there was no evolution. It's stuff like this that I want to go back to over and over and over again because it felt... Okay, no, we gave you a bunch of energy, and then we're going to take that energy, and we're going to double it, and triple it, and quadruple it. Or the reverse. We're going to take away, and take away, and take away until you feel like you need something to latch on to. That's what I want. And they gave it to me. But I feel like the album was building to this moment, so I don't just feel like, this is a great song, the other stuff let me down. I feel like it was escalating to this. That said, the song has a real strange curtail towards the end, because after that final chorus, we get Ben Mendelsohn to come back as what I'm saying is the representation of Murdoch, um, to do some more dialogue that wraps up the track. It, it's it's an interesting outro, yeah, at around 2 minutes and 34 seconds. It's, it adds some interesting spice to the end here, because suddenly, oh, really suddenly, it was a lot less obnoxious, I guess, as the vast majority of this track was. And I say that in a fun way, of course. Well, of course. But, you know... Just the sound, that's not, that is obnoxious. It is right. It is in your face, and suddenly here at the end, it sounds a lot more delicate. So I don't know. Going back to what John was saying, I, I, I accept that this track here probably did make me a little bummed out, I guess, on the previous few tracks in retrospect, because sometimes that's just how we play this game. And we arrive at tracks that are just like, wow, that... I really wanted this, and you're so satisfied that you got it that you don't really value as much the stuff that led up to it. And I, I do think that some of the better albums bring forward that that well-rounded feeling, which uh, I, I admit that I didn't have 100% toward you know, the tracks leading up to this. This is track yeah. five, and I felt like this just as easily could have been a resounding intro. Yeah, I could see that too, but I do feel like Ascension serves its purpose as an intro very well, but I do agree that this track could also supplant it. Yeah, and of course then where would you, where do you go from there? Right. Like you need to come up with something bigger, grander. You yeah, know? It, so it's... I kind of liked the album builds to this. Of course from here... I don't think we can talk about that kind of retrospective yet. We need to get a little deeper into the album before we bring that up. So we move on to track six, The Nonconformist Oath, which very clearly is clever and it serves as an introduction to submission which is track seven it's not it's not cle- it's brief and silly this is i mean it's not clever clever and now let's repeat the non-conformist oath 
I promise to be different. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat other things people say. I promise not to repeat other They don't really say that. fade out on that. It was a like a show bit or something like that. It's man in front of crowd. This is, of course, Ben again coming in and doing this, which is actually the most different he's sounded so far on the record in all the times he's been featured in an interlude or intro. And it's it's cheeky. It's I don't cheeky. know. All right, so it's, cl- it's cheeky not much is more than, than clever, but I, I appreciate it. I'm going to read into it just one little step further and maybe achieve the clever, you know, barrier. <laughs> I don't yeah. know that. I guess maybe I would say if if this is what he's doing, it's like a joke on how celebrityhood always inspires people. And since the, this, of course, is the band, it sounds like they're the band on stage right now, yeah. the virtual band, right? I get more of a political feel from this, but that's just me. But I could just be ascribing that. It Perhaps, but, it, but, but, but it's through the lens of the virtual band yeah, in the yeah, same sure. way that the virtual ba- it's It's Damon Auburn yeah. standing in for the virtual band, which is standing in for the political issues of the real world. So <laughs> yeah, it's going back yeah, and forth. It, it might just be him making fun of hipsters. I don't know. Like it could be too. just something as simple as that. That's true. All right, but it does blend pretty smoothly because there's a heavy beat that comes in one single beat at the very end of the oath, and then that blends smoothly into track seven, Submission, which features Danny Brown and Kalila. Kalila, who I believe is one of the many voices of Noodle on this record. Her caliber of softness on this track is phenomenal. I want to listen to it all day. She it is, is velvet. She has beautiful vocals, and I love the me- the melody of this song. It just kind of moves along. Her vocals kind of enrapture you. The synth beat is pretty pervasive here, as it's been before. Um, so that's nothing really new. I don't think it's any more or less in your face than it's been at dun, this dun, point. Dun, but- dun. Dun, dun, but what what makes it less perv- you know in your face is how beautiful uh, Kalila's vocals kind of take center stage and kind of enrapture you. Well, They're very warm. I'm gonna just interrupt to say that the same exact thing that happened at Pev in Pevin Everett's track, right? Yeah. That did not happen here. Right? Right. I, just not for me. Okay. Now, see, there's that, that the phrase for again. Thing, for yeah. me, right, that going. did not happen. I'm actually stealing a line from Bill Burr's bit because he does this whole rant against the for me's, the for me culture because, yeah. of course, we're all chiming in on this stuff. So now I'm really, like, hypersensitive to it. But in this case, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could get past the beat in this case. And I really did like her vocals. Yeah. And for almost an inexplicable reason, I just did not get past it in the same way that I got it got past it for him. And the melody is beautiful, her voice is beautiful, and there are lots of interesting things alongside this. I like when the indistinguishable voice kind of steps in to murmur along with her, to mutter along. I cannot tell if it's actually saying something, or if it's trying to say something, or if it's merely just going in the background. And that is such a little effect. Briefly showing up for maybe five syllables in a row mm-hmm. and drops right back out, but it adds a haunting quality to her vocals that was just the perfect touch I needed. There's that, and there's the smattering of 8-bit sounds throughout this track. There's also lots of bizarre transitions that, that well, again, that taking off sensation where she says, it's all I got. And when she gets to the end of that, it's all I got, it sounds like something is just rising up, rising up, rising up, and then and then boom, the rap, the rap. Danny Brown's rap. It's just, again, once a kind of a high-intensity It's thing. very cartoony. It's very, it's full of character and theatricality. But beyond that, this, this song uh, seems on the album to represent a problem that I really didn't expect to have, um, which is the token 
a pop song with an inserted rap bit. There does seem to be a very divorced feeling between her vocals and her melody and this rap. Which is why it's interesting because I said high intensity and it's the same exact way I described it in moments. Yeah. Right? And that's sort of high intensity, but yet in moments it like that high intensity feel sort of comprised the whole entire track. Where so it, it had already been established. Random. Yeah. And I understand the need maybe for this track to want to add something else because I already said I was getting a little bit tired of that dun 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 right? But then yeah, I don't think a rap was what it needed. It needed some change in instrumentation. I'm totally on board with that. I'm having the same issues as previous. But what really drew me out was not just the intensity change, but the general flow of Danny Brown's rap wasn't quite fast enough to be impressive. He wasn't spitting at a at a at a, such a fast pace for me to, you know, jaw drop. But the slower kind of pace he was going at wasn't so slow that the inflection changes were pronounced no. or were allowed to be pronounced enough to add extra impact. It was very even. Yeah. He went along with it and was kind of yeah. speaking at that kind of a pace, what I just did. Yeah. So that, that wasn't a reaching high energy. It was reaching mid-energy for me. It was That's more high energy, though, I, I realize we're, we're really talking in abstract terms right here, but at the same time, yeah, I guess when I say high intensity, I don't really mean fast. And it's funny also, it, things are only juxtaposition if you can perceive intent. Yeah. You know, otherwise it is just, like I said, opposition for the sake of opposition. And I think that was my problem here. Now, by no means do I think this is a bad track. I just feel like the rap took me out of the moment a little bit. Um, but, you know, all in all, I still really love Kalila's parts in this track and the overall track itself. But, and this is where I'm going to actually bring up a point that's going to be very minor in my actual wrap-up, but very major in a lot of my critiques. This didn't feel like gorillas. It felt like... It felt like Kalila was getting... Danny Brown on her album to do a guest piece. Yeah, that's the way I, I saw uh, quite a few of these tracks, actually. This is the one that I definitely say, like, where's the gorilla flair? We're not getting some of those weird actual musical changes that yeah. we've identified throughout. We're not getting any of the vocals, regardless of whether or not the vocals have changed from album to album. Like, there is an identity in Noodle, in Russell, in 2D. So... That's not there. We're not getting any of the instruments and the the presentation of the instruments that we've gotten in previous albums. Noodle's guitar, Russell's drums. So where's the gorillas? This and, track really does yeah. lack them. And, and that's one of the reasons, like, uh, first of all, let me just backtrack to say, I don't know exactly what he was going for. I mean, we could try to read into this track by going through the lyrics, but, you know, and it's very possible, considering what I said before about, you know, perceiving intent, you know, that there is some some reason for him, you know, singing really quickly. I don't, I don't quite see the relevance in doing that in this particular case, even though I, I kind of see the message that's going on here. My problem is sort of the same as John's, is that I am not really caring about the Danny Brown versus Kalela story. Like, that all is very tangential to the gorillas. And that, I think, is, is really more what my problem is. So you don't see it musically, you don't see it lyrically, you don't see it. It just feels like a, a weird, you know, side project. It kind of, you know, pushed in the middle of the album here, track seven. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a curiosity to it, but I don't necessarily, I don't get the connection piece either. 
But I for, don't dismiss it. I'm just yeah. confused by it. For all of my disconnect from the Gorillas, the next track, Charger, like, I, <laughs> this might be my favorite track, but I think I'm like at three right now at this point in the album. So Charger features Grace Jones. Um, oh, Grace who, Jones. Grace Jones pretty much haunts the entire track, and I, I love her punctuated moments here. I mean, she's a phenomenal singer, but this feels the most collaborative of all the tracks so far, as far as... 2D being integrated with another singer. Well, first of all, I want to just go back to Grace Jones is not a phenomenal singer to me, but I love Grace Jones. I love her as a performance artist. Well, maybe and it's, it's night, more the performative. Yeah, it's more the performative nature. I guess when I say I know her tone, and I think it it fits a certain style. Yeah. That Damon Auburn, if he wrote this uh, alone or with her, I don't so they know. Wrote whatever. It together. If they wrote every it together, track that he's collaborated with, he's written with the person it, collaborated. It channels with. her work. Yeah. Like amazingly, mm-hmm. uh, this feels like it could have been dropped on any of her albums and could have been the ho- one of the highlights of her work. It, it's interesting because, of course, she only really is present in just a few of these lyrics. I am the ghost, provocative. That's what I want, and I love her inflection. I always have. I wish there was a little more of it, but that I don't want to harp on that because I still feel that even though we only got a tiny little bit of Grace Jones lyrics here, I got a Grace Jones track. That is how this is written, and we'll get into the music right now. Because 2D shows up heavy with the lyrics. But before that, before that, there's two other band members right there. The attacking guitar and the pseudo-industrial drums. It, it really feels like the personas of Noodle and Russell. Yeah, that grinding They're guitar. They're there. Yeah. They are there. That- and this, this is why I'm saying it's a bit of a contrast from Submission. This feels like... It feels like it could go back to Demon Days, without a doubt, as far as the presentation goes. You know, I said yeah. a lot back in the Snooze episode, uh, 236, about the perception of rhythm and how sometimes things that may actually be counted for band members' sake uh, at a certain pace sound to me either slower or quicker, depending upon what the prominent pulse is, you know, in, in to the listener, not the musician. In this case, I felt this track really slow, really, just like this extremely slow sway. A cha cha cha, every, like, it's, it's hypnotic yeah um everything is supposed to get in i love the melody here and that's the that is the highlight this is the kind of thing that feels like this marriage of damon auburn grace jones that i never knew i wanted but i'm really glad that i got it's this highly chromatic cha cha ja, and then he repeats that a little bit higher the next time cha cha ja. it's it, it it the tension is palpable and it's in the melody and it doesn't <laughs> hurt that the guitar is just Wailing on it. For as slow as it feels because of the vocals, the just the, the, the sheer audacity of the music being unable to in its attack to change the way the vocals are presented. I think I remember more what it was. It was like constant pull-offs. And it was just harsh and it was just painful even in just moments that it's it feels like it's legitimately Angry. Sometimes doing the same thing over and over and over and over again is exactly the correct choice in music. Well, and also, going back to Grace Jones, I think the reason I said she was a great... I love her vocals and she's a great vocalist is not necessarily because she's a great singer, but I like what yeah. she does with her vocals. And the fact that she's kind of haunting this track and punctuating these moments and her laugh, the fact that they got her laugh in here oh, is yeah. just such a strong character trait for her. And so I love that we got that, you know, I am the ghost. <laughs> and it's, it just... It 
It's it, yeah, it's more like they borrowed the theatrics of Grace Jones than her actual singing quality. Right. But that's all it needed because yeah. again, the music really channels her aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to go through her discography. Well, to learn and what then that later on, the two is. of them are singing together, and it really does feel the like a marriage of that. Yeah. Oh, It's just it's nuts. This is this is for as much as you kind of get invaded by the guitar, by the drums. Like, I zoned out with these vocals yeah. and was, was listening to every little syllable, every little drip that was going on right there. It was it was not opposition. It was juxtaposition between the two ideas that was a perfect marriage between high and low energy. It also felt like it brought out something within Damon Auburn that I had never heard before. Yeah. Like, his singing style, I feel like I know very well at this point. Yeah. I know exactly what he's capable of. I know what his range is. I know what his tendencies are in melodies. And this was just something completely out of left field yeah. that... Who knows, maybe it was a lot more, like, maybe that melody was written by Grace Jones and then set to Damon Auburn. That yeah. was fascinating. See, these are the kind of collaborations that we just don't come across a lot. There's so many collaborations, I feel, in our experience of albums have been like, all right, that's that's all right, that's cool. Yeah. Kind of just like mix and matching. It's like, yeah, well, you put two moderately talented music- musicians together and you're going to get a decent output. But it's not always magical. And this to me was magical. Even though the track didn't wasn't like this magnum opus or anything, it just, it had this quality to it. And actually the end, the end of this track almost did have a little bit of a magnum opus quality because it, it even took the, the self out of the track. It felt like it was going to a, a cinematic excursion where they're climbing up the big evil tower where you have to destroy the evil one at the top because the energy in the back, this like chorusing with a sense of, of wind against the microphones just made the end of the track sound really dramatic. I felt like I had been listening to a 45 minute thing even <laughs> though it was only kind of a short track. Which is why I think they put the next interlude, track 9, Elevator Going Up, in because it's literally four seconds long. It's Elevator going up. Yeah, it's dun. it's bang and then elevator going up. Yeah, you know that the, Ben comes back with his Murdoch, as I'm going to continue to claim it, um, and then we go right into Andromeda featuring DRAM, which is not the first time we've had DRAM on this album. I heard that interlude and I was like, "That's not a track. That's Get out of here." And it was <laughs> too short. But but it further proves that these interludes really serve as a setup to the following track, yeah. which again we're moving into Andromeda, and so this I believe I feel like Chargers. Start something that I thought was going to start with moments, but we really don't kick into it until Charger and now Andromeda into feeling more like what we've gotten used to expect from the Gorillas or Gorillas aesthetic. This felt, as much as I may have said earlier, this felt like not just like first album or Demon Days, this felt almost Clint Eastwood level of let's let's take the whole idea. Not just the, the non-rap parts, not just the singing parts, though... 2D is singing this time instead of being just nonchalantly rattling off in tune. It feels like it's taken a lot of the aspects of the very early Gorillaz first yeah. album and putting it together. But oh. but I have one complaint, and it's not a complaint about the track. It's a complaint about Matt when we were listening <laughs> to the track. Because he did something that screwed up the beat for me <laughs> by going... The putsy cats things that we yeah, haven't used in forever. It's there, it's definitely it's there, there, but I didn't hear it until you freaking pointed it out. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a little bit weird that I didn't hear it though. Yeah, I know because it's really there. Like the the rhythm is undeniable when the song first starts, but it builds around it, and so I don't 
really mind it. Because I hear more the bass than yeah. I do that put tiketsa, right? When I'm yeah. focused, it's really more right? See, and you put those yeah. two. Boom, boom, and they, boom, and they boom, mix boom. And it's really just well. those two chords. It's yeah. just like D and A or something like that. So it's one five, one five. But it it's... works. And the reason this works is a little complex for me because it really boils down to a moment. It boils down to one of those moments that I guess I haven't had moments. since moments. <laughs> really. <laughs> because it, it is... First of all, I need to agree with John in the way that I connect this to almost the gorillas like pantheon. Yeah. And it has to do with the fact that I love Damon Auburn's speaking, singing style, mm -hmm. where it's a little softer and you don't have that like 2D radio filter that he's put over so many of 2D's sections, right? Yeah. In this case, it's just very, very smooth and it's it doesn't have the... the you know, wonky flair that the previous track he has. This is sort of back to his usual stuff, but it feel it felt more natural. Mm -hmm. Like the rest of the album is so busy, you know, shocking you with this and that and this and that that suddenly this track seemed a lot less full of pretense. I'm not saying the album is pretentious. I'm just saying that this particular track felt like it was a much more relaxed uh, setting. Like it yeah. was, and I felt relaxed with it. It was a smooth, low key. R&B track done Damon Auburn's way and then of course you have Dram's pre-chorus that leads up to it back to when it was cool because there's no substitute who even knows the truth the truth the truth and we build up to of course this chorus this minute 06 chorus the return to uh, D minor with just this little synth jam here because of course it's a constant crescendo the synths are do 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 and then boom you're back to D do 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 I, I, I melted. And I can't even explain why I melted because it's not, again, it's not a flashy track. No. I just know that it, it had me for some reason. Almost explicably, it gave me the chills. It was probably the simplicity and the earnestness of the lyrics that I think married well to the music. That chorus, take it in your heart now, love her. Take it yep. in your heart, 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 heart. Take it in your heart. That repetition mm -hmm. and the closing of the chorus where it all goes down. To go right back into these verses, which actually do, they say a lot yeah. that I don't think we really have gotten. Like it, it, it seems to be a, a poetic nature to it, instead mm. of just a rap or a hip hop nature, like poetry. Yeah. Outside cold, it ghosts in now, it jet lag. I took it to the right man, took it all back. When the courts were closing, it was Bobby Gracing. I know that. I put it to the right man, he put it back. And then Dram's verse. Caught in your eyes, stacks of light come streaming back. Make it for the best times, growing pains, good times. And then good times, good times, good times, good times, right back into the chorus. Like it, yeah. there's, that might there's, be considered more of a pre-chorus, actually, uh, dram sections. But still, there's a cohesion like, to it. Yeah. And it made it more song-like than the experimental departures that some of the tr album had. And I like experimental stuff. But without the filter on 2D, it was one of the few times that cohesion breaks through in the lyrics and it's something that's that happens a lot in gorillas when he's clear cut he tends to be more coherent instead of having that filter that radio filter on top yeah. of him and i know it's, it's more, more just damon alburn at that point but he has such a beautiful voice i mean it reminded me from the kind of uh let's see every planet we reach is dead now the yeah. vast majority of that track on uh demon days you know had that really d heavy distortion guitar very 
extremely high attack, really, really um, pervasive. But then toward in, in the, the middle sections, right, those the verses, then, you know, picture I'm a dreamer, I'll take you deeper down to the deepest low, right? My voice is shot right now. I don't yeah. know if you can, listeners can tell I have a cold. Nevertheless, this is like... It brings me back to that section, so I don't deny that there's a bit of nostalgia here. And, it, you know, there's another uh, vocalist that I'd compare him to, and that's, of course, the lead singer of, of Coldplay. You know, I actually hear them as kind of being a little bit similar when they're in that range. Some listeners might convulse, because I know yeah. there's this weird subculture that just hates Coldplay's vocalist. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I think he's really, really good for mainstream. Um, but, yeah, it just puts me there. And that's... that's uh, well, the second to last thing I'll say because Matt wants to get something in. Well, also, I just want to talk about the outro to the track because they do something that also is pretty common for, for 2D singing. But they do bring in the filter at the very end, but only on one of the three different 2Ds that come in at the end because yes. he harmonizes with himself. And I love that. I love the juxtaposition then of the filtered filtered um, 2D, unfiltered 2D, and 2D light. I don't know. It's just all these different versions of him that blend well, together to do that Damon final outro. Damon likes to yeah. do that in, in moments. And... While he's he's getting a little bit of computer assistance in yeah. in harmonizing with himself, he can self harmonize with himself when he's singing. So it's 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 just always good when he works his vocals. And, and it's just made for a fun kind of final moment and final punctuation on this track. All right, now that last thing that I was gonna say, and that's of course it actually is present throughout a, a good bulk of this track, but it's a subtle element if you're not listening to it because the volume, the mixing is turned quite a bit ways down, and that is these overlapping synths, this comping that goes on throughout most of the track, some of them sliding, some of them popping, some of them soloing. It feels like there's like three different layers. It's not a single thing. So as benign as it may seem from like a mixing standpoint, it is a really, really complex element, and it it, it binds this track together in, in a way that... Uh, may not might not seem too obvious, but I would really uh, promote this as one of my favorites, right alongside moments, but for completely different reasons. Sure. Well, also, I think that what makes this song a powerhouse is it being paired with Busted in Blue, which is track 11, because they are similar enough in tone, but go in really still separate directions, which is what I like about them. Yeah. Because Busted in Blue has more 2D singing, but he's so much more soulful and pensive here, which is not something you really get from 2D. He's usually very deadpan, but there is definitely, it reminds me of Melancholy Hill. Melancholy Hill is another track where Oof. you really get a sense of emotion from 2D. Well, it's called yeah. Melancholy Hill. Come on. Right. But he, he, he works with within the framework, but here, it's space with the presentation of like a satellite sound or the general kind of white noise you get if you're just listening to the radiation of space and what I can only really call the space synth piano like the sort of thing I kind of commonly associate with all right we're gonna we're gonna portray an object moving in space nothing big like a planet maybe maybe an asteroid or, or a satellite and Boom. That's the sort of synth piano we're going to use. Seeing as we just had a previous track that talked about Andromeda, and we all know the Andromeda Galaxy, and this track which says quite bluntly, I am a satellite. I am a satellite. I believe you are correct. However, I need to offer just some sonic devil's advocacy, because in this track, I heard immediately train whistles. Like, it didn't sound external. It didn't sound spacey. It sounded physical, very physical and old world even. Just the way in which he chose these particular sounds, it, it, it felt more like steam and a whistle, like I'm at an old station in like 
the early 20th or late 19th century and I'm waiting for a steam train. That's how this sounds to me. I would, I'm, I'm not gonna say that your, your connection is wrong, but only because I, I, I work with trains and representations of trains constantly. <laughs> I didn't actually hear it, which is weird. Like if you're but so, I love trains, and I'm in touch with them. <laughs> yeah, but I listen to them all freaking day long yeah. when I'm at work. Anyway. YouTube videos of trains. I've, this, I lead a very interesting life. This goes softer. <laughs> yeah, I, It's absolutely. not even as soft. It is softer than Andromeda, which, yeah. as much as I love Andromeda, I'm, I love the fact that it's set this up. Because yeah. the very first lines, the very first verse, feels almost lullaby-esque. Yeah, but there's a sadness to it, too. Where does it come from? When everything was outside, busted in blue. How in the universe, through the lithium, busted in blue? I was asked by a computer, a shadow on the wall, an image made by Virgil, to rule over us all. So amplify the sirens and to find real amends, and through the echo chambers, to other worlds away. Yeah. Um, That's poetry. Yeah. The and presentation also- is just so freaking awesome. And also, I want to extend the same compliments that I gave to the previous track because, of course, as a pair, these tracks work together really, really well. Uh-huh. I mean, you kind of just settled down from the, the the busyness of most of this album in the previous track, and it kind of really prepared you for this. And it's the same exact singing style that I described in the last track. It really is, is even almost more at bay in this particular case because now you don't even have that, you know, that beat. You don't even have the you don't have any of that. Yeah. Um, which makes this probably the more emotional of the two For i sure, guess it's easily. just it's just that i had liked the transition moment but i also really like you know the the climax as it were or the anticlimax in this case it's also the transition moments between verses and choruses and everything that's going on the the actual vocal breaks there's like this downplayed epic rumble yeah. between them that's just like ooh it, it sends a chill as much the, as we got a chill when they were Told to have a chill down That's our backbone. It's kind of like the rumble is, that I described in Charger a little bit. Yeah, at the yeah end of that. this this is though a little more elongated. It's a couple moments long instead of just a, an instant or a moment. You can really only hear it though right before he starts singing. Yeah. And it stands out the most. And I noticed when he starts singing, he actually sounds even more desperate here. Mm-hmm. So the rumble becomes more prominent. He sounds more desperate. It is. It really was a uh, a narrative shifting moment for the album. And of course, those lines, "All my life, all my life, be my light," and I like the throwback of course to all my life we haven't had that line since uh saturn's bars um it seems to be the the go-to i don't know the mantra for this album a little bit yeah well i mean i think because they're talking about there are hints at least at social and political stuff and life stuff here so (laughs) well that's broad as hell (laughs) well i mean more like living a life or a real experience not you know not experience experiences experiences multiple experiences more of um, a retelling of one's life but i was wanting more man (laughs) I will go back to, as we move on to track 12 and 13, track 12, which is another interlude, talk radio, which brings Ben back again. Um, I want to add something to what we've been talking about with these interludes. I feel like not only do they serve as an intro to the track that comes after them, which they do, but I think they also break up moments of the album. I think that I have less conflict with these bizarre shifts because these interludes are serving that exact purpose of breaking up the album into chunks of narratives or moments. It's true, and considering Busted in Blue was like such a dramatic end, like for the most part they do follow and coincide with the interludes. Like if you have a big dramatic conclusion, boom, then you have an interlude and then it's next act, next act. So yeah, it it, it breaks up a pretty hefty album uh, pretty well. So having talk radio, which is 
another blurb. Break up the really not quite downer, but but really subtle sweetness, and to go into carnival, which is a polar opposite. Not not necessarily the exact opposite pole. There's multiple poles on this one. It's a three-dimensional polling object. It is distorted, feel-good introductory laugh, uh, laugh of laugh out loud kind of a moment. It's it's just like cramming all different aspects of the distortion idea into like five seconds. And then going into the track. So Carnival features Anthony Hamilton, and it does start with a laugh, almost similar to the laugh at the beginning of Feel Good Inc. But <laughs> but, yeah. but it does go into this lurching instrumentation that I really like. The way this track trudges, it adds to this Carnival-esque nature. Picture like a very cliche Carnival and the merry-go-round and the kind of sounds and bizarre feelings at a kind of avant-garde carnival and you get a sense of that here a bit um you but know, it's being played on an organ grinder an old yeah. haunted organ grinder that somehow inexplicably has access to 8-bit music because that's what the 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 crux after this brief introduction really sounds like to me like a ghost grinder playing midi but, yeah, but it was kind of over, to me, a generic hip-hop beat, and I thought that was a little bit bland, uh, just just for the starters, and it does, believe me, it does get a little bit more interesting as it goes, but I, I had some problems in terms of overall direction. I feel like I was staring more at an idea than a song, and that's fine, um, and again, we already have had a lot of ideas, so I feel like at this point I was really wanting more uh, flushed-out content. I mean, it was a brief song, so saying that it was an idea makes sense. I think that, for me, what really wrapped me up was the soulful singing of Anthony Hamilton and his lyrics, the kind of wordplay he was using, um, also the beats halting at specific dramatic moments to emphasize the lines. Actually, to emphasize the lack of the completion well, of certain right. lines was was probably, in my opinion, more important. Having a missing word that is like the, quote, expected or correct word right. to finish that sentence, to finish that rhyme scheme or that sentiment. That was a really cool. It was, I, I want to go metaphor on this one, and it, this is a merry-go-round. But it's a merry-go-round that's a little bit haunted, a little bit screwed up, and definitely needs a layer of paint. And our vocalist is going around and around in this merry-go-round. He's he's coming further away from us and coming back, not just in the actual circular motion, but also his heights change, his vocal inflections change. It's almost like as he gets that real close shot up next to you, instead of being eye level this time, he's up in the air or down far below. But the problem is we never quite get close enough for that punch I keep expecting. It's it, it just keeps breezing by us over and over again. The one punch, the single punch in this track was that spinning me round and around and around. That one line, even though he actually doesn't even enunciate at the end because he sounds like he's getting dizzy over the course of it. And that was actually kind of interesting. But that was really the only one where I was like, ooh, that's some interesting inflection. He's tapped into the feeling of the music. I mean, there's a sense of a theatricality, I think, for me, for the whole song, but... It doesn't go much beyond that. It doesn't expand beyond that. That's all I mean by idea yeah. and not song. You yeah. know, I know it may sound a little bit uh, cynical, but it's just like I, I wanted some kind of development beyond the singular thing. But again, on a 20-track album, I, I realize that if we made those concessions on Drunk, for instance, with those little short snippets of tracks, where a lot of them, of course, were just ideas, but yet they seem strung together, then I have to make the same concessions here. It's just that 
not every track on this album works that way. It's it's a, it's a mixed bag. And at this point, the bag was getting just a little too mixed, and that was my problem. Yeah, and I would say that it's not really a problem for me. I think it was something I acknowledged, but I think, I think for what it was, it worked. I think that I didn't expect more, but I would have gladly taken more mm. or an expansion on it. The three of us may be going off of instinct more with this album today, but let's just see. With track 14 brings us, and that is Let Me Out, featuring Mavis Staples and Pusha T. Let me out. <laughs> Let me out. Yeah. So um, I'm, of course, uh, mimicking uh, 2D's uh, contribution to a part of this track where he literally whispers into the mic, Let Me Out. Um, this is interesting because the way it starts, it's very halted and it, you know, push a T, fairly straightforward hip hop sound, you know. That matter of fact style. Yeah, not very, a lot of... the rhythm is very uh, predictable as far as what he's rapping to. I don't mind his rapping style. I actually quite like it. But it doesn't do anything as far as mind blowing changes to the genre. You know, we get it, but it also doesn't feel like a token rap part. Like the way the track starts. It fits. It makes sense. The, it doesn't feel out of place. Um, and when it blends into the gospel R&B chorus, I like the transition. I just feel like there could be more to both parts. Both parts feel pretty um, face value, something that's not uh, surprising or unexpected. But I do like the way they blend together. Part two, Mavis Staples' part, is that gospel yeah, part. Is that, that rising buildup of energy over and over and over again. It... It doesn't release in some big explosion or anything else. It actually releases into the very placid nature of 2D. Mm-hmm. I like that. Like Once again, yeah, the transitions are pretty good, but it felt like a three-piece almost standardization of, yeah. of hip-hop. You have verse, chorus, post-chorus, yeah. or pre-chorus-chorus. I don't know, wherever you want to put today, or double course. I don't know. It doesn't really matter too much in my ears because it was just a a sort of call and response kind of a thing going on here, and it it felt it felt like I was having a lot of the same problems I was having earlier in the album in that I was not feeling flair going on between these parts because they they kind of do All right, you got thing. the word. Yeah. You got the word is flair. I think that was what this track was missing with me. I, I had a equally difficult time explaining exactly why yeah. uh, this track didn't get me. And I have some, some admissions. And one of those admissions is that the gospel-oriented chorus. I know that this is not... This is a fallacy. This is a fallacy. I'm admitting that right up front. But we've had a lot of like gospel albums that we've been dealing with lately or that or albums that took influence from gospel in various components. And I guess for some reason, it's not really doing it for me at this point. I At least I need to see something it, it done on the broad, like, yeah. you know, on a full gospel album and not used as the idea that it is for the sake of someone's individual art piece, individual song or moment in a song. And I think it's that usage that gets a little bit tiresome, which, you know, is that highly ambiguous ground of the cliche. Because what is useful and cool in every instance to some people, like me with funk, where I see funk and I just automatically melt and I see it <laughs> as integrated, then here, no, it's not that. It's, um, it, it's to me, I guess I'm, I'm bordering on the cliche portion. And sudden little motifs in this that keep coming back, like the, the piano here got a little bit old. The, the, the one five flat three two one motif got a little bit old. They kept coming back with that. 
Um, and it just it seemed a little obvious. The end with the choir, it's like that reckoning moment. Yeah. And it's these kinds of things that smack of being cliche rather than of, you know, what the track needed. I don't know. I know that's vague. I mean, yeah, this is a tough, you know, when we're diving into longer albums, we do kind of lose the word sometimes to describe, I think, but we're hitting the nail on the head that it is just kind of proceeding as normal. I think we like the gorillas most when they are throwing us a bit of a curve. Yeah. Um, and here there was no curve. It was fairly predictable, but that said, again, it wasn't at bad. This track, it's, at this point, it's just an unfortunate cross-section something that we've been developing a bit of a cliche slash bias bent against and now now we find it in an album by an artist that is we so so associate with innovation right and i think for me it's less about that and more that there was not a lot of innovation on the whole the track as a whole not just that one moment like the gospel didn't stand out to me yeah but i would agree that the whole track was fairly predictable but i still liked it i thought that for what they were doing it was well integrated like john said like each it did the Pieces stood out, but still felt well married, and so it's sort of like the worst of this album seems to be just pretty good hip hop, right? So this is just we have not good reached my worst yet, and that's no, coming. We're, so, we're coming up uh, so far. So uh, far. okay, right. we'll go with so far. Okay, but so track fifteen is another interlude, Penthouse. We bring on back Ben again to uh, uh, interact with us as Murdoch, and then we move on to I think in a. A wholehearted agreement, all of our least favorite track on the album, which is track 16, Sex Murder Party, which features Jamie Principal and Zebra Cat. Let me just connect that really briefly, even sure. though we're really gliding over these uh, interludes. But the, the phrase was, something was going to happen tonight. Yeah. And maybe that's the lead-in for this. And I, I did actually enjoy this interlude a little bit above the others because it was that, well, that big rise again. Not yeah. that we haven't had our share of that on this album, but it was kind of like flying over the head of a party. It's like I felt like I was a drone or something mm-hmm. witnessing this party from above and this filling up this vast field or something. And then, I don't know, maybe just coincidentally, maybe not, probably not, track 16, Sex Murder Party. Well, it's funny that you mentioned, like, you feel like a drone flying over a party, because that's exactly how I feel about this track. I feel like I'm getting a bird's-eye, predictable view of what a club track is. Like, it's repetitive, Uh the lyrics barely make sense, they're very bizarrely delivered, it just, you know, it had this almost primal driving drum beat that, this thump that is very associated with someone in a club just kind of being assaulted almost by the rhythm. It feels almost like a samba, but like through five or six closed walls, where all you can really get is that beat, that that dance track just trying to reach through. So, yeah, we have a beat, a touch of emulated techno guitar work on top of that. It's weird. I do like the weirdness factor, especially in spite of the word murder 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 yeah. murder murder that comes out i like that that feels like straight up gorillas i fear that something's gonna happen at this party <laughs> that feels straight up weird and foreboding and and something that i guess we really haven't seen like actually fearful i actually felt a little bit fearful for this my fear was kind of unfulfilled because that heavy beat washes over a lot of what's going on I drove the kids, I drove the kids into tears of your 
priority. We think that's what the lyrics yeah, are. Yeah, I think we so. We actually got two different versions, so I don't know. One was I Drove the Keys. Yeah, um, I Drove the Keys. I will say that I do like um, 2D's delivery here, but I think my biggest problem is... And so I, I'm going to take a Steve stance here for a moment and have to believe that this is tongue-in-cheek because I don't know how else to take this track. Oh, and Steve has had that such stance. such a me stance. It is such a me stance. But no, seriously, like it's so cliche. It's so repetitive and so bizarre that I feel like it has to be a joke. I mean, even listen, sex murder party, like the idea that a lot of these club situations are dangerous and, you know, drug addled. But this isn't the, but see, here's the reason I wouldn't take that stance in this instance. And it's interesting (laughs) because I don't feel that this is quite as over the top cliched as some of those other, uh, can't think of them at the moment, but examples that I've brought up, right? Sure. I feel like this is, it's the weaker track on this album. I don't think it's horrible. No, I don't either. I think it's, but I think it is very boring for, suspiciously boring for this album. That's why Maybe I'm that's inclined it. to think of that, is because yeah. it's suspiciously boring, whereas nothing has been boring up to this point. There have been boring, <laughs> there have been boring moments or features, no, but no. no whole track has been boring like this one has. I don't think it was suspiciously boring. I think it was going for ominous. I think it was actually trying to be, like, truly Dark. I'm. I'm not taking yeah, it as I satirical here. You know what? It wasn't even the whole track because I. I'm gonna join you in agreeing that that though, that verse is pretty nice. I drove the kids. I drove yeah. the kids or keys, whatever, whatever it is. It is whatever yeah. it is, I do like his delivery. I like the even melody, though, yeah. even though it is through that uh, sort of radio thunk, filter this thunk, time. Yeah. We have the filter, um, and then we have Zebra Cats. Now, when Zebra Cats' uh, voice came in, this was interesting because his, his voice actually really reminded me of the lead singer from Future Islands. <laughs> that sort of growl, you yeah. know, but every, like there's the the baritone, but I don't know, or maybe it was just the inflection. I'm not sure, but I I wasn't like mind blown by that. But as a vocalist, I wasn't mind blown by it. It was still a little bit bland to me. It didn't quite have the character, yeah. the same level of character. It was really more me trying to reconcile once again the 2D sections with the featured artist sections. Yeah. And in this case, I was taking a hard line against like I, I don't see the blend at all. Yeah. They no, feel th- just like it's one and then the other this felt very random and arbitrary unlike that beautiful Grace Jones match made in heaven. This I I saw no purpose to it. Yeah. I, nothing musically was clicking to me if if that explains why I saw no purpose to it. Yeah, I think for me it just felt too um, superficial almost, and I think that's maybe why. There was no greater meeting I was driving from either the vocals, the lyrics, the music, anything. Um, uh, someone probably got murdered, so I'm sure. You know. I, well, I mean, it was a sex murder party. And I hope I it's actually not related to the next track, She's My Collar. <laughs> I really hope I don't not. Because so. <clears throat> whoever she is, and I think he actually said, I think... Uh, Damon said, this is inspiration. So so um, I found a blurb from Rolling Stone that says that the song he wrote under his duvet cover essentially while traveling and that this is meant to represent him fighting with his muse and traveling constantly in inspiration. Which this is really interesting because I'm trying to do my own that. little interpretation of this track. I saw something completely different and that was that he was trying to compare my she's my collar as in like the relationship or the uh, the you know, XY or, or male-female relationship as to a dog in collar, yeah. which is which is an interesting metaphor because yeah. it makes it seem like a rather dysfunctional one. Yeah. Though, though in this case, I want to say it works. So I kind of, 
it's a little bit... Mm, well, there were several reasons why I kept coming back to that. Yeah. For instance, that phrase, she's the one I'm running with, which is an expression. We don't really use that expression over here. You know, I'm running with, you know, I'm, but it was just means, you know, I'm going with her, right? Right. But running with here case, is you're walking your dog. I, yeah. I, at least that's the way that's my mind... What, I took it that way. Yeah, once I was... Once my brain went there, then I couldn't take it back. And so I found that interesting because she's my collar and she's the one that's keeping me on this leash. I don't know exactly, but I, I do know that it was interesting that if you take it from his perspective, if we're going off that Rolling Stone quote, uh, that it is more based on technology and feeling alone or something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, which is it, what it, he states. That, then why would it bring in a, a separate, another uh, featured artist, uh, unless it's just no different from any other track and that it has to have a featured artist, but that would be Kali Uchis um, for this singular verse, I'm yellow, he was blue, it's nothing that he could hide. We made a green meadow wherever we would collide. I died a thousand times, I did what I had to do. Hey, that's just how it goes, I'm still coming back to you. I Sounds mean, so relationship-oriented. Actually, the one line, I died a thousand times, would be his iPad dying over and over and over. <laughs> Not no. gonna lie, I thought that. Yeah, no, well, like, well, there's a little weird, though. But I would say also, uh, this ro- you can romanticize your relationship with a muse, especially since in a lot of depictions of media, a muse is always feminine and then like the most beautiful vis- visage. Like, so I- I'm not saying that your uh, perspective is wrong, Steve. I think it could be easily both. And I think the fact that it does make you think that overly romanticizes his muse even more, I think. But you well. could also take that he's stuck to his actual artistic tool that it's that's what's holding him holding on to him like he's being limited in some ways but he's still running free in others with this tool that he has to keep going back to or that he chooses to keep going back to so he made it broad enough to apply to love but specifically about just the fact that he keeps going back to his Apple product that's making his music. Why don't I fuse the two? Because there is this one little bit. She's the serpentine. She's my collar. I send her a message, never call her. In other words, it could very well be both. That this yeah. is about a relationship and it's how technology affects that relationship. And that it kind of removes the personal touch there. I don't know. But you know what's like, short? I mean, we just in the same in the same way that you'd yeah. rather be like you know cuddling up with your dog on the couch than you know having to put that leash around. It always feels a little bit much. Like okay, we just kind of went from pet to slave a little bit, and always feels a little bit sad. But like that, if you were to compare that to a relationship, it's the same kind of detachment. That talking on the phone is obviously a lot closer than the second you start trying to autocorrect yourself and everything. It stands this filter, this layer, like just like that leash and collar is. You know, like that. That will never change, and it's sad. It's a sad barrier. It is a sad barrier, and I'm going to shift this to something uh, way more concrete, which is the actual vocals that you mentioned before that Kali sings. Sure. Because John actually pointed out that it had this very smoky, speakeasy feel when she comes yeah. in. And though it's brief, it's very poignant for the song. It really makes her, for a very nice moment. Her moments interspersed in 2D's parts as yeah. well are in that very same smoky. sort of vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of that speakeasy lounge aspect is mm-hmm. lost, but... She's still, she's channeling a very beautiful voice. What I do like more on the vocal scale is that Tootie's elegant. Yeah. Like, he feels like he's actually elegant. Like, he may have cleaned himself up a little bit, (laughs) and maybe he's a little bit less possessed. Maybe he can see a little bit more clearly. Maybe, 
Maybe. I don't know. But there's something that seemed to have clicked in his head. Even even when the words are running a little bit oblique with the the illusions that are going on, the illustration that he's presenting, it seems like he knows where he's going. And that's something I'm actually a little bit unprepared for. So it's a little bit appropriate to my ears that there's distortion going on. And I love this distortion. Yeah, I think that some of that just comes from Damon being Damon. And I think the evolution of 2D as a character, as well as the evolution of Damon as a performer. Um, But this track also does have a sense of momentum. Like when he's talking about traveling and how lonely working on your art can be traveling, the, the way this song moves along and kind of chugs almost, I get a sense of that movement on vehicles of some kind. Like, there's an aesthetic to that as well. Part of that is is the melody, because, of yeah. course, the melody is all eighth notes. Every single line, you know, the, if I could take her down and run, then I'd call her. Like, it's just, yeah. it's very... It's very regimented. Mm-hmm. But, again, that there's a huge artistic reason for that. Yeah. Again... Because we need that regimented kind of feel. We need to be steady in some way because there's like, there's a guitar that I can only describe as being played kind of backwards, but also kind of underwater at the same time. It's a weird effect going on. But when you put it against a very steady bass, like the bass keeps you grounded, but the weirdness of that distortion or the the twangs that show up at, at almost random intervals going against those really soft piano touches like it's steady but that steadiness is kind of necessary because the things that are going on top of it are are almost interjections like little little explosions not big booms but a little like pops of energy in that you that you need a little bit of grounding to get yeah i i agree and also one more thing the regimen of course collars and leashes and walks and keeps dog you take, that that's a regimen it's got to keep you yeah it, it keeps you from going too far out so that's way he feels and of course he'd sing that way of course justification of course <laughs> well let's move on to yet another interlude uh, with our good friend ben he's our friend we're on first name basis at this point this one's called the elephant i love the evolution of the relationship he has with ben right shut now. up <laughs> no, i thought you were gonna talk about the track right. out of the elephant's trunk confetti what the that, well, yeah that one is a little lost on me um but moving on we move on to the first single of this album uh, which is Hallelujah Money featuring Benjamin Clementine and undisputably, undisputably? Is undisputably a word? Indisputably. Indisputably. We'll go with that one. One of the vocal highlights, well, actually the vocal highlight of the album, I'd say. Um, I, I, I need to just, like, vent a little on him. Go, go for it. First of all, my initial observation of him was that he sound he sounded like Nat King Cole back from the dead. Yeah. It was creepy. Yeah. But also because of some, you know, recent experience of ours, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. I felt like him, which he now sounds, is also back from the dead. Well, so he sounds like an aged singer. He and sounds it, like someone who's been around for a long aged time. Aged singer from the crooner era, but from a specific uh, little corner of it. And he sounded like a fusion of those two vocalists. And apparently I'm not alone in this. I looked him up and I'm not the only one to notice the Leonard Cohen thing for sure. And I believe the Nat King Cole thing was referenced in another article. So I'm not alone in this. And actually, if you look up a picture of the guy, he looks a lot like Nat King Cole. He's got like Except he's the same. 30. I know. It's weird. It's so I, weird. But okay, so let's get to it. 
His vibrato may be one of the most captivating vibratos I have ever heard. Like that, that is a, a strong statement, again, for a long, uh, five-year-long podcast <laughs> now. But just talking about the vibrato and that velvety voice of his, which, of course, was the, a uh, adjective always used to describe Nat King Cole. I mean, I don't want to just anchor him there because he also has his own touch. It was, he, he was described more as a poet and uh, a poet slash singer who actually went from being a busker around Paris who was homeless for a while back when he was 19 years old and then he was discovered and now all of a sudden he's selling out major venues. So he is a rags-to-riches story that puts a giant smile on your face. The specific part of his flair that hits me over and over and over again is the fact he, he sounds like he's at the end of a set. Like he's, yeah. he's tired maybe a little bit tipsy because he's got this subtle, very subtle slur at, at little moments that just drop down his voice another little octave and get that velvet a little bit deeper that is just being beautifully married with the music itself. It's definitely the, be- the, the beautiful side of the theatricality that the gorillas bring. And what I really like about this track also is so I called it synthastic because it really does have this hum of synth that feels almost gospel-esque, but it's not quite, and it's wrapped in this technology. But what really, really hammers home this song for me is the chorus. Like, uh, we, there's a ton to talk about here, but the opening line of the chorus where he just goes, Hallelujah, money, and and just drags it and croons it. It melts me, literally melts me. It's it's unbelievable how powerful that is. Hallelujah, money, and then of course the humans chorus comes in. Hallelujah, money. So let's go back to that uh, synth thing that you brought up because it it is a bit gospely, and oh well, why does it work here and not in the other case? I. Maybe a little bit of it is just association, and I had yeah. a different association here, a uh, more positive association, and that was with, um, it, it, it felt more like old school choiring, and what yeah. I mean by that is the kind that you'd hear in like 1950s big budget films about the classics, like uh, in The Vikings, for instance, with uh, uh, Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. um, when Eric, right, Eric the slave is being tied to the post at high tide because uh, it, it was his punishment for attacking um, uh, Kirk Douglas's character, and so he's sitting out there in the tide, and the old woman who 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 knows the Norse gods and is in touch with that, and she knows she's the only one who can read the runes. She goes out there, and she believes that there that he has a purpose. Odin's purpose is to save him, and so they're all praying that the hot, the tide is going to go down, and that he won't get eaten by the scorpions or something like that, right? And in this midst, you can hear the Odin sound, and the Odin sound is this old school choiring, this like. The skies are parting and everything because there was a storm at, for, at the time. And then it, it's just this beautiful sensation. You feel like he was just saved. And it's the same exact choiring that I felt here, but it's pervasive throughout the entire song. I could listen to that all day, and I could certainly listen to this guy all day. So here's the big question. Where is the gorillas? Why am I not caring that the gorillas are not here? Because I... this is a... I hear it. No, no, no. I hear gorillas. I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue right away. I'm not gonna let you finish. <laughs> Plastic Beach is here. Plastic Beach is here in the distorted style of the actual background music. I feel it. I feel that maybe not as complicated as it gets there in that album, but I still feel the general soul in this piece, in this song. It's a little bit askew, a little bit off key, but still. Very much in a in an R and B style, while still blending other ideas into it. 
I mean, yeah, I'd be inclined to agree with John that I also didn't really think, well, where are the gorillas? Because I got a sense of the aesthetic of Plastic Beach here. But also, I think more importantly is that... The, the the performative nature of this made it feel like there was a band here playing keyboard, playing drums, playing guitar. And so maybe just 2D hadn't showed up for this session, but the rest of the band is there. I got even, a sense even of though they, 2D does sing. He, he, does he does sing. sing. He yeah, does yeah. sing a little well, bit. First of all, you weren't listening to me. I said that why am I not caring that the gorillas are not here? Because it's so, a phenomenal all right, song. We're in a, I'm a little <laughs> middle ground here. Yeah. John hears it. I don't hear it. I don't hear it at all, the gorillas. But... I didn't say that that was a problem. <laughs> and that's why this is a really weird case, because to me, this is the first and only featured artist success story on this album. And I mean that in a very, very pure sense. Because after all, what is going on in the Grace Jones case? That seemed like like a success, but that was a, a marriage of the two styles. Yeah. That was Gorillaz and Damon Auburn meets Grace Jones, and they had a baby, and it was that track, Cha Cha Cha. That's the name of the baby. But in this case, this is a featured artist. It felt like someone separate coming in, doing his thing on an album, and it accomplishes what a featured artist track, I guess, is supposed to accomplish. It's that, at the end of this, I want nothing more. I am excited for nothing more than to go after his discography. Yeah. Which is one album. one album. One album, one album, but I might be checking in on him again and again yeah. because I, I, I need this type of singer in this generation because yeah. I don't know of any. Any at all. Yeah, and it's, and it's just, it brilliantly transcends... Again, because we thought he was such an aged singer, and he's like 30, literally a baby face. Yeah. Like, if you reversed age Nat King Cole, it would look like this guy. Yeah, pretty much. There is a point that the that I, I, I would challenge you to not say is a, at least a Damon aspect. And that's when the word power gets uttered. Late yeah. in the track, at the end of the second verse, at the end of the spoken verse yeah. by Benjamin, the music just shifts. Yeah. For a moment, it shifts, yeah. and it kind of gives a lie to all this waxing eloquence on how awesome money, money is. is. I agree with that. And that moment, that moment was the most gorillas of this piece, and one of the most gorilla moments. And also the final moment. Yeah. And the final moment, yeah. yes. I the final say. moment is like he... he Belts out. Hallelujah, buddy! Well, it was like he was broken from his own spell. Yeah. The spell that is his personality and his shtick as an artist. And then all of a sudden, just for the sake of this album, he was just like, hey, hallelujah, money! And that's well, just... I don't know, it's, it felt more natural in the kind of goofy delivery as other gorillas featured artists have done. And I think what really gives that juxtaposition is right before that, we get the most unique high-pitched quiver in the outro where he just flutters his voice and then goes into that. And well, I think that's what really He's also got it. church bells going along with it. Like, yeah. it was like grand, grand religious experience and funny. It was, it was just like a, a jab in the eye almost. Yeah, I mean, well, if you just think, all right, I don't think we need to, like, really unpack the, the message of this yeah. track. I think it was just a little I ironic ode to everything we maybe shouldn't love about money. I mean, sure. I, I could totally see that without, I mean, it Without seems even really reading into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think no, it's, so. It's kind of right there on the nose. Which is why, I guess, like, when you get to the end and he's just, hallelujah, money, it felt it feels like, yeah, the, if the whole entire thing was this little satirical bit, right, then at the end it's just, somebody just got his paycheck and all yeah. of a sudden then it, there's no satire about it. It's, yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Track 20, and this is the end of the proper release, I guess. The uh, standard release. We checked out the deluxe, and we'll give them a few honorable mentions at the end. And nevertheless, this is the last track on the standard release. Yeah, so we got the power featuring 
uh, how do you want to say this name? Jenna? Jenny? Jenny. Jenny? It is still, like, phonetically, it still comes out to Jenny. Jenny, okay, Jenny Beth. It's an H. Um, who is from the UK band Savages. Uh... So here's the thing. I thought Hallelujah, Hallelujah Money would have been a phenomenal final track. I don't think that We've Got the Power is a bad final track, but it's just, it's it's very simply, and we haven't really encountered this since the heist, a victory lap song. That's yeah. what this is. This is a victory lap, cartoonish, upbeat, silly song that's meant to put a period on the end of an album but it's not a period I feel like we needed necessarily. But I don't dislike it. It just seems very bizarre to be the final track. A little I bit. think it's trying to bring back the energy of moments because oh, it has the same energy uh, that moments has. And I don't know. Yeah, it's just a dandy, uplifting track. We've yeah. got the power to be loving each other no matter what happens. We've got the power to do that. Um, a little bit of French in here. On ne pouvoir de sa mère, okay? Okay, because okay is universal. Right. Um, we've got the power to be ringing the great bell out there above us. We've got the power for that. We've got the power to do that. And then Jenny Beth's uh, and 2D's section. They dream of home. I dream of life out, out of here. Their dreams are small. My dreams don't know fear. I got all you. I got my heart full of hope. I will change everything, no matter what I'm told, or how impossible it seems. We got the power. We did it before, and we'll do it again. We're indestructible, even when we're tired. And we've been here before, just you and I. Don't try to rescue me. I don't need to be rescued. Something I will say about this track that's interesting is that we went 19 previous tracks without really having any genre pieces. But this feels distinctly 80s mm. or 90s even a little bit, like late 80s or early 90s. It's it feels very poppy. Yeah. But, but we haven't, like, that's something that's kind of phenomenal about this album up to this point, And I'll talk more about it in my wrap-up. But we haven't really said, oh, it's this genre, it's that genre. Like, we hinted, like, there was hip-hop and R&B. But, but for the most the part... general umbrella. Right, but for the most part, we've not really had things that really fit, feel like they fit in something else. Whereas this does. This feels distinctly s- 80s, I feel like. Very peppy 80s pop. I would say that a couple of tracks were, we don't call it a genre, but... MIDI tones, MIDI synth Still, tones, those are and sounds, like not that. genres. I would argue that this is the first one that distinctly sounds like something we've heard before. But that said, you can still hear 2D's vocals in there. You can hear Jenny Beth, who stands out quite a bit. And so I think for me, that gives the song enough character that I don't just write it off. I do think it is a strange final track, but also knowing the gorilla is not completely under uncharacteristic of them. Yeah, there's usually at least one happy-go-lucky song on an album. I mean, think about 192000. Which is one of my favorites, and yeah. will probably always be my favorite. I think I think this, what weirds me out a little bit is it being the final track. I think if it was somewhere in the mix, I might not have, I'm, it might not have standed out in a bizarre way like this, but that said, on contemplation, I kind of, I kind of like that. And again, and we'll, we'll say it, some honorable mentions about the bonuses. So tracks 21 to 25. 26. Uh, or 26, rather, are only on the deluxe version. Um, and while we listen to that version on Spotify, it's not uh, considered the standard release, which is what we try and always do. Um, unless only the deluxe is the standard release, which happens sometimes. Um, my favorite track on that was called The Apprentice. And it was mostly because of the soulful choruses in that track and the way it kind of integrated technology in the chorus and the hook really pulled me in. It was a toe tapper, but I don't think complexity-wise, or even it compares to some of my favorite tracks on the main chunk of the album. But it was definitely the highlight for me of the of the deluxe tracks. And for me, there was a track. For me, for me, there for was me, a track for me, for me, for me, that me. I 
I, I think, deserve to be on the main release. I, I This was Out of Body, track 24, featuring Kilo Kish, uh, Zebra Cats again, and Imani Vancha. I really, really like this track. I think this was really almost top tier, like just a couple levels below some of my favorite tracks here. Um, Kilo only- Kish's vocals specifically, and just from that opening little bit where she goes, pipe down, pipe down, pipe down, pipe down, pipe down, pipe down right? And then her delivery was just so interesting because it actually reminded me of Maiden Heights and how she phrased certain lines. It's like they had unexpected accents or uh, or marks, you know, on the beat. You don't expect this, that a certain syllable will fall there, but it's a it flows very very smoothly. And then there's also those playful little moments, like she's describing a dance almost, beginning with that "I lock hands with yours, we dive into the floor. When we reach the core, then we stomp some more. I lock hands with yours, and then we dive down to the floor, seven thousand miles till we reach the core. And then we circle back and we stomp some more. Got it? It's just like that." Well, I don't exactly got it, but she just, you know, you, you glide right past that and move along. Like, okay, but yes, I, I'm nodding yeah, along. Yeah. I, again, this wasn't <laughs> a, a hard analysis into this particular track, but I just, I it was a constant smile uh, throughout. And it was really, I, I forget the name of the lead vocalist um, in Maiden Heights uh, on episode 220 which with uh, Mike Rugnetta, but it really reminded me of that, even felt like it took that style a little bit further. Uh, again, don't really know if this is the Gorillaz influence, but whatever, we've kind of already had that debate. I feel like this could have brought me over in much the same way as some of the other really, really good featured artist tracks. Why is it deluxe? I don't know. Yeah, actually, that was my biggest question when I was listening to these. Like, why are they separated? Other albums, like, most notably for me, like, The Heist. The deluxe tracks really did feel like they would have not added to that album. Yeah, they just felt like really catchy songs that were great to have. Yeah, yeah, like they weren't supposed to be part of the product. They were a legitimate bonus track. But there were enough other tracks on this album that we had enough of those issues with that it's like, well, swap out some of those for these, and I think that actually could make I, a big difference. I wouldn't yeah. even go that far. For me, like these were just more of the same. Some good, some not as good, and yeah, some in between I didn't those. love all of them. I don't think they would have taken away or added to this album... Except making it like 110 minutes long, I think was the actual yeah. with all the luxes. Nice big chunky album to listen to, almost a movie. But I guess they personify what I saw as the the whole general idea. I guess I got I got for this album, which was I don't want to call it a Gorillas album. I want to call it the Friends of Gorillas or the Super Friends of the Gorillas album, because. Every track on this album was a featured guest, a featured vocalist showing up. In many cases, they were the only vocals, and in a few select cases, they were the only identity, I felt, when the gorillas kind of didn't show up. But that that I'm actually going to keep separate from my evaluation and, and final number I want to throw at this album, because... Yeah, sure, this may say Gorillas on it, but even when I don't feel like it's the quote Gorillas, it it's still a pretty damn good hip hop album. Like at its lowest point, it's just pretty damn good. At its highest point, I'm I'm talking like heavy earworm, I can't get it out of my head. I'm talking it's it's really just evoking something in me. Whether it's through just distorted effects or weird presentation of vocals or 
opposition or juxtaposition. It's doing things all the time that are interesting with very few hiccups. But there's some dead zones area surrounding these really interesting ideas. And some of them don't go and round themselves out fully. It's almost like we I got two steps forward and two steps back. But those steps forward are leaps and those step backs aren't aren't as huge as I may have made them out to be when we were doing our review. So while this is not a five star and it's not even really a four or five for me, it's definitely above your standard four and I'll put it at a four two five. Um, I'm really going to try to just avoid entirely the question of whether this is a Gorillaz album. I went into this really just expecting anything, anything. It was the most open door I could have imagined for an artist that I thought I knew. Uh, because you just never know what you're going to get out of Damon Albarn, and especially you never know what you're going to get out of him when he's working under the Gorillaz moniker. It's just, it's an, it's an open bag, but it is such a show, and I think this succeeded at least on that ground. Maybe that's the one ground that I'll connect to the name, and the fact that it really is kind of a show, and it's a show off of several different things, all that he can do. He like he loves extremes. He loves making it uh, connectable to both the dance floor and the headphones. He likes to bring it back to songs in the end, but he's not afraid to be experimental in the process. That's all. That's a hefty bag of ambitions, I guess, for an artist. And I do think that this succeeded in on almost all of those grounds. And we're just gonna pull back from all of that and look at it as the album that we try to visualize here on Crash Chords and enjoy from front to back, I guess on our on our own terms, then this does still succeed on a lot of those levels, but it has a lot of question marks. I don't think I was able to really find the overall narrative here, at least it was just a little bit too obscure for its own good, maybe? Uh, unless that was the intent, but of course you can't really rate on that. You know, if, like, the intent was literally to mask being like, all right, Damon Auburn is going to kind of get across his his personal feelings on the state of the world, but mask it behind the uh, the guise of, of people who really don't want to have to deal with any of that, who really don't have to confront it in any way, shape, or form. Um, then I guess maybe if that was the case, then it's a success. But that really doesn't ring true to the, maybe the original intent then. If that indeed is true, it's very complex. But I do think that if you were going to, you know, compare it to the other album that tried to tackle almost that same exact subject, and that recently that we reviewed, and that was Drunk by Thundercat, I do think Drunk was a little bit more uh, successful at that. Because at least it was able to tie together a narrative along those lines, and that narrative was exactly the very thing that it wanted to avoid the problems. Here you have to dig in order to find that that's the thing, and that's a little bit of a problem for me. I would say that Drunk didn't have the variety of talent showing up, and that's what allowed it to You didn't to let achieve. me get to talent. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's probably the very next thing that I was going to get to. I... I mid, I don't even know if that's true. I think they're just two very, very, very different types of artists. I do think that uh, 
despite the fact that we really loved the sort of sh- shorter song format on on Drunk, not to make that like the sole comparison here, but just for the sake of argument, even though we grew to love that more than any other case previously where we looked at shorter songs in the past, I do really think that Flying Lotus and Thundercat have a little bit of a longer way to go before I, this, the whole entire song comes together. And in that, yeah, Damon Albarn has them a little bit one-upped because I do think it takes a little more sometimes to write the complete song. But then if you talk about that relative to other things, like the kind of, you know, five, six, seven-minute monster pieces, even though there's not really monster pieces by, I guess, our standards at this point, still, by the larger magnum opus processes that we still like to see in artists, then Damon Auburn kind of has a little bit of a farther way to go for that. But again, that's not his shtick, and the longer beyond two-minute length thing is not the shtick for Thundercat. So really, that's not relevant. I think... Even though this is kind of a cop-out, this keeps this as a very, very narrow, like, it is perfect for what it is. Except maybe the featured artist thing. I think that's the the biggest problem that I do have on this album, and it does make it maybe a, a little bit of a... I have to bring the gorillas back just a little bit for this. And if I was going to compare, even though it's irrelevant, <laughs> even though if I was going to compare to their previous work, then yes. The featured artist thing does take the gorillas out of this. What John said before is, I guess, what I had been saying a lot during the pre-listen, and that was uh, the fact that a lot of these tracks do sound like they were Damon Auburn working as a mixer for tracks for these other featured artists that they would take and put on their album. It, it felt more like it was the other way around than it was like, hey, come together for my thing. What we have here is what John, I think, was trying to get at, and he didn't mention the word, and it's really more of a mixtape. This is really a mixtape of an album to me. Um, and we only actually did one mixtape, and that was a coloring book by Chance the Rapper. And I liked that, I, but I think I liked this a whole lot more. In which case, I I am liking a non-mixtape better than the real mixtape, but it's the best introduction to a mixtape that I have yet seen in my very shallow knowledge of a mixtape, even though it's not. Maybe going on record is my most roundabout wrap-up, but I wanted to get all those points out just to sort of allow listeners to experience the way I'm visualizing this album. I enjoyed it considerably, and for 20 tracks, yes, there are a hefty amount of tracks that I will be going back to. There are some throwaways. There are maybe four, five, or six of them are weaker than the leading batch, uh, minus the fact that I would really like to see, in general, I just, as a personal taste thing, I would like to see them expanded a little bit. But they work as songs, they work great as songs, and especially as the experimental variety of them. It's just, because of the lack of narrative arc, I think this is just a hairline short of the upper echelon for me at a 4.4. Alrighty. Um, Well, first of all, just to touch on something that John brought up, although this shouldn't be about, is it a Gorillaz album? Because guess what? It is, because they said it is. Like, that's, ultimately, it was a release by the Gorillaz. But yes, as far as a feel goes... I think the reason that I still feel like it, I consider it in the pantheon of Gorillaz to be a Gorillaz album, even though there are a lot of moments where it feels like they are not there, is because the Gorillaz at their core is whatever you want them to be. That's how Damon designed them. That's how Jamie helped design them. They are to be this kind of shapeshifter of a animated act. And so in this this retrospect... There's more focus on the featured artists. Also, the album is called Humans, 
which they are many of on this record. And so I think maybe that's also a shout out to the fact that they are involving a lot of humans in this product. You may project. be on to something. No, I would argue that it's actually because it's just human interaction with the world around them and representations of different aspects and kind of like talking points of your life and other deep introspective things. Or both. Or both. So I think <laughs> that's where the narrative of there being a clear narrative of this album I would agree with Steve. There's not really. You can get moments and chunks of it. But I think the fact that it's called Humans and it's featuring a lot of artists that, that Damon it respects and enjoys and wants to collaborate with is telling as well. Um, I am not as down, down on as many tracks as you guys were. I think really Sex Murder Party is the only one that stands out as something I don't, I think is only okay. I, I like to love the rest of the album. Um, I think that as far as a gorilla's work, this is up there with Demon Days for me. It totally eclipsed Plastic Beach and the self-titled, both albums that I like. But Demon Days was kind of the pinnacle of of the gorillas for me and a lot of people. And I think this just beats it out. I think because it just engages me over and over again in multiple ways from track to track. There's a variety that I can't help but get wrapped up in. And like John said, very simply, these are all good to great tracks, period. I'm, I'm going to just pull that back a little. Sex Murder Party is a bit of a poor track to me. There are I, other I'll tracks. That. There are that. other tracks that are only okay. So in other words, just turning each of those dials down a notch. Fine, but again, still, I feel like it's a very cohesive album. And again, even though the the theme, as it were, is not super obvious. I think the overall uh, feel of the album, and for sure the arc, is pretty solid. And so, for me, that really bumps it up. I think this is, for me, easily an upper echelon album. It's not a five, for sure not, because the, I do have gripes. But, you know, it just continues to further impress and enhance my love of Damon Albarn, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite artists of all time, um, as I get more and more familiar with his modern work as well as the stuff that I like He before. is a surefire bet. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that. Like, if if you just want, I, I feel like I can guarantee that I'm going to get at least something solid out of him in any work, in any, uh, under any moniker. Right. So for me, this is um, is just a hair over the upper echelon. I'm on the opposite side of Steven. This is a 4.6 for me. I think this is the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. The fact that the big selling point for me is that we never we barely mentioned genre or time period because we didn't have to because there was enough quality to talk about or interesting things to talk about that it didn't matter. Hey, closest was like, oh, this is kind of like early hip-hop or this is this is R&B plus. But, but we didn't re- rely on that. That's such a crutch for us on so many other albums because we have no idea what else to say about it. Here we didn't have to because there was plenty of stuff because Damon Alburn is a phenomenal producer and musician and so that's something that really bumped it up for me is the fact that we didn't have to engage in that the track moments you know notwithstanding it there this album itself is really been i think a a huge justification to my long search on this album for excuse me on this on this series on this whole entire series for moments yeah and how sometimes we're like all right this album is a little lacking for moments but i like the overall thing this is the inverse yeah like for instance you mentioned arc before the arc is actually only okay for me but i don't think i care as much just because he provides such a huge bang for your buck yeah. in in individual moments of individual tracks there's a hefty number of them more than most albums and now today's topic which i'm bringing up as sort of a self-recrimination about 
some of the things I said today, because I was I was down at a couple of parts, and I may have gotten a little bit harsh, and we've gotten pretty harsh over a lot of things in music. And then we give our review, and even I'm scratching my head as, well, I did not sound like today that I was going to be giving it a 4.25. I didn't sound like it was a 4, especially in certain tracks. I yeah. sounded like it was going to be a, a three-star album. But a lot of times when we find a overtly negative or an overtly positive aspect of the track, we hone in on it and yeah. we go over it and we have to make the point as to why this is a positive or negative. And then it, we realize at the end of the day, that's a very specific positive, but it wasn't enough to make it less negative or vice versa. It's a very specific negative. This did not work. This was this was a part that I just couldn't stand and it ruined the track for me. Why am I still giving it a 4.7? Well, that's something Steve called me out on last week with uh, Diamanda Galas. Right. Um, that my, my discussion of the album seemed fairly negative, but my uh, wrap-up and then um, rating was more or less fairly positive. And... I think it comes from a place of having a struggle with articulating exactly what we get from an album. I argue to the to the to my dying day, one of my biggest regrets is not properly defending as an advocate the um, Everlast album that I brought on because I still feel very strongly about my rating and why I loved it. Yeah, no, that's still one of our big head scratchers. But I couldn't articulate why I liked it, and it it fell short. You know, my wrap up was still rated pretty highly, and. I just didn't have the language to explain why. And I feel like I've gotten better at that. But still, sometimes when we articulate what we like or dislike about an album, it's stronger in those moments than it is in the actual overall feeling. Yeah, my, um, I mean, obviously this podcast has helped us out considerably with that over the course of the five years, yeah. uh, which is why I've, I've you know, developed a this tendency to write in insanely long spiels for even just a singular moment. Uh, today I didn't do that so much because I don't know if you could tell I got a bit of a head cold. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, it, it, I think that the trick is amalgamation. And sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason to yeah. that. I mean, there's no specific equation, even though, yeah, we wrote articles way back when about, like, how we rate and everything. There's no specific equation where it's just like, okay, all right, subtract from that, add from that, yeah. add from that, and we have now resulted in. <laughs> at, like, at the end of the day, you just have to go a little bit off of instinct and honestly say to yourself, how often will I be going back to this? Yeah. Were those amazing moments that I, you know, felt that one time... Are, are they going to transform my life? Yeah. Or were they just really, really cool for the time? Does it bind the album together? Or was it just kind of an ac almost an accidental idea? And that may sound really cruel because, of course, you might say there are no accidents in music. But you can kind of tell, like, when you amalgamate an entire uh, album, right? Now, the album has such and such X amount of tracks. And you go through them and you see... All these different songs that are falling into cookie-cutter patterns, cookie-cutter patterns, and then you see that one, which is like, ah, that was a really, really good idea. Then you can kind of see how often the artist may come across these good-to-medium ideas on a regular basis. And I do think I can tell, based on today, even if you just omit your knowledge, your past knowledge of Damon Auburn, that Damon Auburn is a, I've used this expression before, a veritable geyser of good ideas. 
right? And he keeps on coming up with them. And so the ones that are just a little bit weaker, you can see that they were just a little bit rearranged. The weaker ones, they're not terrible, but they're rearranged to not undershadow or drag down the stuff that is phenomenal. And I think it's that process that sort of brings me to my rating at the end of the day. It tells me what I can expect in the future to some extent. And that can be wrong, but it is a little bit of a gut feeling with a lot of my own little internal equations, if that makes any sense. And uh, speaking to what Steve said, just kind of mentioned that sometimes you got those cookie cutter, cookie cutter, three stars over and over again, and that one five star that shows up. We actually, I know I did, and I believe you both may have, have made that faux pas in the episodes you shall not listen to in the early 50s, where it's like, okay, I'm going to one five star, eight three stars, I'm going to try to average it out yeah. using numbers. And it's like, no, that that doesn't work. In instances like that, sometimes a a momentous five star can be worth more than the other forty five minutes of of generic radio genre A, and sometimes that those those one or two like oh geez that's a really bad piece can drag down an otherwise amazing album. As Steve said, not just through placement but also when they're part of context for like our arc that we search for or the themes we search for or the general story we might be trying to find or I'm always looking for. Or maybe it was just, okay, that one distasteful lyric that honestly I did not really like and it it left a bad feeling. Or why did you go social on a love story? Yeah, you have to factor in those sort of numbers, but it's... As much as I love to say there's math in music, there's not math in in how good it is. It's math in the compositional work, in, in actually designing bars and things like that. I, 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 it's hard for me to try I think to do that to math. Find, it's trying to find vision. Yeah. I think it's trying to see the vision and whatever that vision is. If that vision is a story, then I do think that can push me to the upper echelon, even regardless of music sometimes, or vice versa. Well, I think also part of it comes from this primal relationship to music, too. Like, I think going back to Everlast and other pop songs that I've inexplicably just gotten wrapped up in, sometimes it's just a very primal attraction. I mean, I, to this day, still really like the song Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that the synth and the rhythm and the vocals all had a primal thing that I just get kind of hooked on. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best writing ever. It just means that it hits the right nodes, and sometimes that's enough. And sometimes full albums can do the same. I mean, I rated St. Vincent very highly, and it's still in my rotation, and I like St. Vincent a lot. But I'd actually probably struggle to explain now to someone why I love it. I think actually that album is very close to why I rated today's album where I did. Even though that album was a little bit better because maybe... Or, or I rated it higher. I remember I rated that at 4.8 and this yeah. is at 4.4. So how do you reconcile with that 4.4 difference? It's interesting because I think, well, number one, I think this is just being a longer album. I think this had a larger quantity of great moments. Yeah. I do think that album, though, had a larger quantity of great songs front yeah. to back. Like, uh, I do remember it, it, it petered out toward the end, and that was one of its problems. And I think maybe I did take it down. I, I forget whether I took it down or not in one of the uh, 
uh, year in reviews. I probably know that I did. Probably yeah. no lower than like a 4.6 or something like that. But it was something along those lines that like the last, the last few tracks had to uh, be held to the bar that was that amazing trio of mm-hmm. like Digital Witness and, and a couple of the others previously, which are still kind of in my head. All of them, it's just... That show they show masterpieces on one hand and then like okays on another. It's it. How do you? It's sometimes it's just that's what's in the artist's head. Yeah, it's an impossible task to reconcile that sometimes. Actually, I still think about the review we did for uh, Kids in the Street by All American Rejects. One of our like, early ones. As much as high as I'd still keep it rating wise, I probably wouldn't change my number much. I I feel like. It was mostly just I was giddy over how much I enjoyed it, and yeah. it was just a lack of, at that moment, a lack of language in being able to explain the highs and the lows. And yeah. at, at the same time, I feel like there were so many highs that I don't even really think we touched upon when we were doing the review. Well, I still argue that I think if we went back and tried to reanalyze some of our earliest records, and I'm still pushing these guys to someday let uh, let me go back to our very first record we ever reviewed to see if we could better articulate what we did and didn't like about it, that Linkin Park record. I think that it's interesting, given the language... the five-year anniversary. We should just... Troll our fans and be like, all right, review Living Park. Things by Linkin Park, episode 250. Um, but but I, seriously, I think that sometimes just going through the process, you're going to lose stuff. And again, it's it's not always super simple to know why or where you connect. And I think that's a big part of it as well. It's why I could spend an entire track-by-track review sounding fairly down on something and at the end go, but they're talented, so here's a rating. Like, you know, sometimes it comes down to that. And sometimes it's just like there's a note, there's a note that a piano plays that whenever it's played, it it's going to be a positive. Whether it's being utilized positively or negatively in the context, whether it actually fits in the melody or something like that, sometimes there could just be a note or a specific phrase or a specific quiver in a vocal that it hits. You don't know why it's a plus or why it's a minus or something like that, but you know you're going up a point one because that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Because that one thing will bring you back. You're going to think of it one, de- one day, and then you're like, I need to hear it. I need to seek out that track. That anchor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. That chorus. That chorus. Didn't I out. raise that album for yeah, that you reason? Did. You, you did. Because so it stuck with you. So don't you call go. hypocrisy on me. I'm I not stick, calling hypocrisy. I stick by my. Uh, but I'm my saying, rules. I'm saying, like, it, it, it happens. Yeah. It does happen. It happens. All right. Well, um, I think that it is time to make a mo- movement towards, or a moment for, our uh, term of the week that Steve always brings us. Don't uh, be Italian or French. Be German. German? English. Oh. With two words. Oh, okay. What is the gathering note? That's three words. Gathering, gathering note? Gathering note. Okay, I got this. I got this. It is a opening note to introduce multiple instruments at once. That is really close. Ooh. Wait, let me try that. Really close. Let me try. So it is a the gathering note. It is a focal note for all of the instruments to swell with. Close. You got closer? Yeah, I mean, you're both, like, right there. What is it? What do you mean by swell with? So like it's a, it's a note that dun, cues other dun. instruments to chime in with. Wait, like wait, it's wait. carried. It's a, I could do it. That is technically correct, it. though I don't think you quite understand. So then explain. <laughs> it is the opening note that an organist or a pianist would give to vocalists to say, "Hey, here's your pitch." 
Uh, now okay. they know, and now they all have a reference point. We weren't that close. Uh, no, but it's it's just it's the p- pianist's key, so that the vocalist can sing along to him. Yeah. Uh, and that way they yeah. all know where they are because they need to know relatively where they have to be. It's very common. I mean, in... I actually see that a lot. Like when the Wasties play, yeah. you know, one of them will play a note so they know where to sing it on. It's very common in four-part four part vocal harmony because yeah. when the first note, before you have any musical reference point for, an, if as long as you don't have perfect pitch, and right. usually you don't find like four people that have, have perfect, perfect pitch. pitch, in which case they need that reference point. And if they all start in different places, then sometimes you just need one place, and they you. Usually, if they're talented vocalists, they'll have relative pitch, and then they'll be able to say, ah, that's an A. Well, I am a third below an A, therefore I am at an F. So they hear that A, and then they sing the F to themselves, because now they have the reference point. If they didn't have the reference point, though, be hard-pressed to know if they would actually get get their intonation perfect on that first note. Probably unlikely. But we weren't that close, because we thought it was actually during a piece or a song or something like that. We didn't realize and also, we said nothing about vocals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more like practice. Steve was being it's a nice. practice thing. I mean, I'm we're, still we're the only one who's, there, but we I'm were like still the only one who's guessed it right on the first try. But we were. I was thinking yeah. more like an orchestral thing. Like, okay, we're gonna have the entire violin, well, the entire string section actually. Well, now that's on a good question. See, it, this is I guess mainly used for the singing of a hymn. But I wonder if they still call it the gathering note because obviously those instruments still need to tune. Yeah. But you rarely see that um, in the same dramatic way. Sometimes you will just hear the, 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 but I think that's more like a formality than anything. Because really, if you're on stage, your instruments should be tuned already. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Maybe one person. Instruments can fall out of tune pretty quickly. Actually, they can. So maybe it's just that one last chance for that one violinist to go, oh, shit. I need to fix this. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, you might be confused and think this was my pick this week because I did yammer on quite a bit, but it was not. It wasn't all pick. However, the next individual to get a pick is me. And in the vein of following on our shifts and improvements for the podcast, I've picked something to be an advocate for on my own. Um, An album I've gotten very familiar with over the last two months um, that I wasn't originally going to pick because I've gotten a very personal connection to it and I really think very highly of it. But... I wanted to bring it on because I think it's it's interesting. And so it's K-Flay's newest record, Everywhere is Somewhere. I got introduced to K-Flay by um, Shave of the Dark Lord, who's actually going after being on our podcast with his girlfriend, Bunny Buxom, to go see K-Flay perform. And I had not heard of her before. So I checked her out. She's an indie rapper. Um, a lot of her music has... Um, industrial indie and rock influence um she is not a nerdcore rapper though she has worked she did a whole ep with um mc lars previous guest of crash quotes autographs um and someone else i am a fan of and friends with and i really really dug the first couple tracks of this album and a single that wasn't on this album that i heard previously and so i was like all right, I'll give it a listen. Got really wrapped up in it and decided to bring it on the show. So that's what we're going to take on next week, a return to indie rap, but in a bit of a different light. Everywhere is somewhere. Yeah, indiv- four, uh, five individual words. Interesting. Well, is isn't really a word, technically. Uh, yeah, it is. Isn't it? Like If it's in the dictionary, oh, it's a word. That's true. A is it's, a word. That's true. I is a word. We're going to have a discussion about how you not realizing <laughs> is... <laughs> Well, in fact I think, a word. well, I think is is a word, but you can't, like, define is. What does is mean? It is to be. A present yeah, tense conjugation yeah, of the word to be. That is quite specific. <laughs> that is quite Being. specific. All right. Look, it's one in the morning. I'm tired. Shut up. <laughs> We're taking on K-Flay's Everywhere is Somewhere next week. 
So until then, remember, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.